Hello and welcome to Ghost Divers. This is an anime podcast on the Export Audio Network, and I am your co-host Neve, and I'm joined by my other co-host, your other co-host, Connor. <laughs> hey everybody. Um and yeah. We're today your other co-host. <laughs> no. What's that supposed to mean? Well, I so I often say your other co-host, but I said my other co-host this time. And then I got self-conscious about it, because usually I say, I'm your co-host, Neve, and I'm joined by your other co-host, Connor. Like, we are the, we are the listener's co-hosts. You know? We are, yeah. we are hosting no, the I, podcast for them. Yes. Um, yeah, um, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, Gosh. Just, you know, getting us off on the, you know, a really awkward foot there, there. Uh, yeah. I guess this is going to be a slightly weird episode to record because I watched all these episodes like a week ago, plus some, I think. And a lot has happened since I watched these episodes, but it'll be fine. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. Maybe some of it's been pushed out of your brain. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, me too. Uh, I, I mean, we were watching at the same time, probably. Yeah. Give, like approximately. So um, it might be a little fuzzy reaching back into you know, the the canals of my brain to try to retrieve these details, but um, that's why we do plot synopses. Yeah. Um, so, I, I haven't said, we're covering episodes one through six of Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex Second Gig, or I guess Ghost in the Shell SAC Second Gig, which we usually just call Second Gig. Um, and a note here as we go into this stuff, I also didn't decide who's doing episode synopses, but we can just do this on the fly. Um, do you want to do the first one? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay. My note before we get into this, um, for these, so Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex is one of the most well-documented anime that I've ever seen on the internet. Um, I can find full transcriptions of every single episode. Um, the synopses are like extremely detailed. Um, and so I just pulled synopses from, um, I forget if this was Wikipedia or like a fan wiki for, uh, there's a lot of overlap often between fan wikis and the Wikipedia. Um, I made some slight changes. Like, um, I put the, 
the family names first and then the given name second for, for names. Um, but otherwise for the most part, I just left them in. And part of it was interesting because, um, I feel like the people who wrote these care way more about the political intrigue than I honestly do. Um, and so it's kind of nice to have synopses that go into that in a way that like, I'm just not taking notes on that. I just would not be able to pull that out and do a synopsis Mm -hmm. of it. Um, so yeah. And then I can talk about my stuff of like, man, there's some like weird sex work stuff happening in this episode or whatever. Cause that's in my head that I remember. Yeah. Um, I think the, um, the political intrigue is something that really stands out for me, uh, it, after watching the first six episodes, um, as a big difference. Uh, so I'll probably talk about that more than you care to. Yeah. Um, but uh, first, I'll we'll, we'll do the synopses. Um, so um, episode one, um, it's a, a individual episode. Um, I guess I should probably go through the um, the episode type notes. Yeah, I wasn't sure if um, I wanted to do this. Um, like as we go through and we get to different types of episodes, I think we can just do it at the the top. This might make sense. Do you, do you want me to run through it? Cause I don't know yeah, how, where you are of like this breakdown. Um, so we will say whether they are the it's individual dual and individual. Um, so, and the first one here is a individual episode, which is often marked by DI in um, like fan communities. These are episodes that take place mostly independently of the series, two main plot arcs, but may still have some relevance to their events. Um, then I'm like scrolling down to find, cause I put them in them when they show up. Um, so then there's the dual episodes, which are marked with DU um, and these are episodes that focus on the cabinet intelligence service, i.e. CIS, S-I-S, or C-I-S. Um, definitely laugh at that a that's lot in the subtitles. That's how we know they're evil. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the CIS uh, slash uh, Goda plot arc, uh, who's like, the I, w- I feel like I feel fine saying already, people can probably pick this up, is like one of the main antagonists of this series. Um, but that'll develop more as it goes on. Um and uh, also tie in with the individual 11 plot arc. And then the individual episodes, IN, focus on the individual 11 plot, plot arc. So there's kind of these like two main arcs that are happening um, that are, are tied together. Uh, the individual 11 and the like Gota stuff. Um, and then there's these kind of standalone episodes. Um, the, the thing here that's different than the original like first season is... I feel like there's less of a clear distinction. Like so much of of season one of the show feels like it's a bunch of individual episodes where it's just like, this is its own standalone thing. And we're developing interesting themes and we're talking about things and we're like introducing concepts that are going to be brought into the main arc. But the main arc kind of has like very clear, this is their episodes. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's some stuff at the end that ties in more of the stuff from the individual where it's like, oh, this is like really was kind of its own little standalone story. It was like very episodic procedural. Um, But now we're seeing them call in a favor with someone that they helped out in that episode or whatever. Right. Yeah. And it um, cast like events of prior episodes in a different light. Yeah. Where you're like, oh yeah, this is like some of the machinations that were going on 
around that thing that we thought was just like a one-off. Yeah. Um, but a, a thing that happens here is I feel like often there are ones that they are calling a individual episode where it is like, this is its own little sort of standalone episodic procedural thing, but it's so much more tied into like these overarching things. And so I feel like the, the overarching plot takes over a lot more in like this season than it did in the previous one. And for me, it kind of doesn't work as well. Um, we'll get into this as we like get deeper into the series. Um, but I kind of like when the show was just like very episodic, very procedural. We're still going to approach discussing it that way. Cause these episodes are a little bit more concrete and discreet than some of the other anime that we watch. Um, but there's so much more of like, like even this first episode we're about to discuss, there's stuff going on with like a group calling themselves the individual 11 where you're like, okay, th- yeah, like this is its own episode. That's not super tied into the overarching plot. And yet literally the big thing is that this group is calling themselves the individual 11, which is going to come up later. Like, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. It's just like, everything and- feels more immediately tied in. Um, even sometimes within the episode that is supposedly one of these individual episodes. Yeah, for sure. Um, they're like the, well, again, I haven't, you know, seen the whole thing. So yeah. I'm less qualified to say at this point than you are. Um, but like within the like arc of the first six episodes, what are, what I know now are emerging as the main, like, you know, plot arcs. Um, I think they're, I think they're, they're, pretty consistently present and foregrounded yeah. like across all of the uh, episodes um, in a way that it's like, you're right. Standalone complex like doesn't really do that. Yeah. The other thing I will say is I think these first six episodes are overall my favorite episodes of the series. Um, there's some other ones that will, will stand out, but like these first six episodes still feel really strong and good to me, even though I still kind of like the first season more. Um, this one still feels like, oh yeah, like it's there, and it's as it goes on. It's all, um, and it's like all the from here. it's just like as the the main arcs like overtake the show more and more, it loses some of what's special to this sh- about the show to me, which is how much like it is this just like week by week procedural show, um, where episodes are like fun and entertaining and like self-enclosed to a certain degree um and yet as it goes on stuff like develops and you you get this like bigger picture um but still so much of it is just the fun of like oh what's it this week and i feel like this this series doesn't or like this season doesn't do that as much and i it feels weaker to me because of it because um i mean some of it too is like how much am i invested in these arcs and um Mm -hmm. some of this stuff is like I think I have bigger qualms about how some of it ends, but we're getting way ahead of our ourselves there. And I'm not going to like talk <laughs> yeah, about still... the ending constantly like we sometimes do, but I'm just foregrounding this here at the, the beginning. Um, yeah. Yeah. We still need to do the synopsis. Yeah. So episode one, individual yeah, episode. episode one, it's a individual episode. It's titled reactivation reembody. Um, uh, two years have passed. Uh, since the Umibozu forcibly disbanded Section 9. Uh, in that time, Section 9's members have regrouped, reconstructed their headquarters, and resumed their previous role as a special forces team specializing in cyber warfare. Um, so kind of, you know, continuing what um, 
directly from what we saw at the end of standalone complex um however uh as we open on second gig uh the reform section nine is still uh operating without the official consent of the japanese government um because the special forces restriction bill uh forced the group to separate um so they're still like you know they were allowed to reconstitute off the books but legis- like legislatively they're not you know a permitted entity um this changes abruptly when a skyscraper containing the Ch- Chinese embassy is stormed by a group of terrorists identifying themselves as the uh, quote-unquote individual 11. The terrorists uh, quickly take several people hostage and demand that the prime minister issue a statement announcing the discontinuation of the refugee special action policy, which we will hear quite a bit more about uh, imminently. Um, the special assault team is summoned to the scene, so like the standard um uh you know yeah. police is summoned to the scene of the standoff but uh obviously they're you know out of their depth um and they kind of like you know bumble into the uh skyscraper and get captured uh or you know one of the officers gets captured um this aggravates the terrorists uh so they do what you know they often do in these types of plots um set a deadline uh, for their demands uh, and threatened to execute the hostages. Uh, so the newly elected prime minister, uh, Kayabuki Yoko, uh, finally is like, okay, this is enough. Um, she summons Aramaki uh, and uh, more or less orders him to have Section 9 storm the building uh, with the promise that she will uh, reinstate Section 9 if the team can resolve the incident without casualties um, amongst the hostages. Uh, Section 9 then uh, pulls it off without a hitch and uh, become an official law enforcement unit once again. Uh, And then in a uh, surprise reveal at the end of the episode, um, the the, the episode concludes with the return of the the Tachikomas to the ranks of Section 9. Um, Seemingly, uh, having not been erased and scrapped like we were... uh, led to believe yeah. in standalone complex. Um, um, so still retaining their like personalities or whatever. Yeah. We, we will get more about like what happened to the Tachikomas, you know, without revealing stuff. Um, I still, this just like happens in this episode and I'm always just like, like, of course you have to bring back the mascot characters, right? Like the Tachikomas yeah. are the mascot characters of ghost in the shell standalone complex. Um, and so you have to like have them back and yet seeing it, like I'm always just slightly deflated because there's like this whole plot arc about like them dying for Bato and stuff. Um, yeah. and like sacrificing their individuality <laughs> and like giving, like experiencing death. Um, yeah. Like, like we discussed at length yeah. <laughs> in, in our, in our standalone complex, like series how yeah. important that whole arc is um and then and, they're just like completely just, like, yeah, just fucking <laughs> erase it <laughs> um and like there's some stuff that like i i feel like they could bring in some of the stuff that's going to happen later in a way that could make it like interesting of like what are they talking about here um how how is how, how are they going to like continue to try and complicate things with tachikomas but that's just going to take a while um and so like it doesn't happen in these six episodes and so it's just like oh they're back we gotta have a Mac. Yeah. Um, like, also, or like this huge emotional, like the hu- these massive emotional stakes of like the first season that were like 
you know, resolved really poignantly and like interestingly. Um, yeah, we're just like reversing all of that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> at like, and like a throwaway like reveal at the end of the episode. Yeah. With a joke about like, um, oh, but it's not our Tachikomas. And then it's like, oh, robot voice. Ah, just kidding. We're back. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's like a very, like, it's very sitcom y for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting um, moment there. <laughs> so, yeah. The other thing I want to say here, just because we're talking about the Tachikomas, um, Tachikomatic Days is back as the post credit sequence. Um, don't, like, I. it's still fun to watch. Here's the next time on, and it's a little Tachikomatic Days thing. Um, but what happened between, uh, I believe this is true, what happened between um, the first season and then this season is like that segment got popular and so four coma comic started called tachi comedic days um and it was just a gag strip and so now they're just doing gag strip stuff and it's it's never gonna like tie in to stuff that's happening in the plot in the way that it did in the first um season i just want to say that up front here in case like people hate having to go to the end and and watch it's just pure gag comic stuff every time it's just a a little joke thing a lot of it is like parodies of popular anime at the time um i forget if it happens in this one or if it's like coming up there's like a very obvious jojo reference um yeah so sorry if that's a spoiler that it's not tying in but it's not gonna tie in (laughs) um good i don't feel bad about doing what i always do and forgetting that there's post credits yeah stuff in anime so, like, I didn't watch them at all. Um, you can keep on doing that if you want. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, you thanks for relieving that burden. Yeah. I was, I was starting to sweat when you were like, oh, Attached Comatic Days is back. <laughs> um, otherwise, I feel like you might have some more immediate stuff to, to get into here. but. Um, yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, I'm I'm very intrigued by uh, the first six episodes. Um, it's very different. Uh, I think you know. Obviously, you've seen it a couple times, and you have like, you know, stronger like more firm feelings about it. Um, I'm kind of still like feeling it out and forming my opinion. Um, but it is extremely intriguing. Um, the way that the direction changes, uh, no matter how you like look at it, um, there's a way of like, um, I think a lot of my thoughts, especially in the first few episodes kind of revolve around like continuity and change. So there's a lot of ways that like, uh, not only the plot, but also key themes um are like continued um and then there's also like i think to probably a greater degree um like change and discontinuity um so you know obviously there's a plot continuity uh that you can pick up from the synopsis which is like um you know okay at the end of standalone complex you know section nine is secretly rebuilt and this is where we pick up um and, you know, episode one is about them becoming, like, legitimized. Um, ju- uh, like Standalone Complex, uh, 
which by the way, I'm just going to say season one, I'm going to call it standalone complex and I'm going to call season two second gig. gig. Yeah. It's easier. Um, but, uh, you know, you're, we're thrust into like another crisis. Um, just like, you know, uh, standalone complex opens with this like chase scene. They're in the middle of a mission. Um, second gig opens with like another action scene where you're just like thrust into the middle of like this crisis, um, that ultimately section nine is going to like come resolve. Yeah. Um, and I felt like, one of the big th- things that happened at the end of Standalone Complex was was a similar tension of like, you know, um, ch- like continuity and change. Where yeah. like where we're left, there's a I think what we, uh, you know, a big part of our conclusion at Standalone Complex was that it's a very dark. Um, there's a bleak aspect of it um, where like, oh yeah, all of this has transpired. There's like all of these transformative, potentially transformative like moments. Uh, and yet like there's, you know, there's almost just like a reset, like nothing has changed yeah, um, in spite of that. And like here, this is like where we start with second gig as well. We start on the very same note where it's like, Section 9 is back at it. They're doing the same shit <laughs> that they were before. Um, and, like, you know, their their lives are still just, like, crisis after crisis. Like, this society is still, like, you know, undergoing the same problems and, like, solving them the same way with this, yeah. like, you know, uh, like, ultra, like, these this like secret police, you know, these super cops. Yeah. Um, it, a very quick thing. And then I'm going to respond more to what you're saying, but you saying the reset thing. Um, if you had watched the Tachikomatic days, so I think it's in episode two, the, the like guy who we'll talk about in there. Um, Gino, I think says something about like reset the world. Um, mm. I think it's him. Um, and then the Tachikomatic days for like multiple episodes is this joke around the Tachikomas accidentally like flipping switches or pressing buttons that say reset the world and then like reset the world that they're in. <laughs> um, which again, I don't know like how much I, I think the most that happens with Tachikomatic Days is sometimes joking around something that's thematic, which happened a little bit. Like, that's a lot of what the, the, um, was happening in standalone complex, but in second gig, it's still happening, but it feels like the joke is more of the point. Whereas in standalone complex, there's often a little bit more of like a, a reframing or a reference to themes that were happening in the episode you just watched. Um, and that was like more of what they were interested in than just doing a joke. Um, but so th- like it's it's shift a little bit, but there's still a little bit of that there. Um, I think that the big thing is like for the, me, this episode always feels the most like like I enjoy this episode, um, but also I watch it and I can very clearly see how they are trying to set up like here's where standalone complex ended. Um, you know, they we start with them starting to be reinstated and like by the end they are but they're like still not official it's like all the stuff that happened around the finale of standalone complex um the the tension of like maybe the government is the the final boss 
or the final like villain, um, the mm-hmm. final antagonist, which happened in standalone complex is being figured here, both as like it being brought up as the, actually the big thing that they have to do is like Aramaki has to convince them to let section nine do their thing because once yep. section nine can do their thing, they can take out the, the terrorists easily. Um, you know, there's the one that like slips through and is surrounded by the, and it's honestly that the, that SWAT team is there. That's like the bigger issue. Um, it'd be so much easier for them to just take out this final guy with the, the hostage. If the SWAT team wasn't there blocking the shot, then of course, Major Kusanagi can come jump out the window. We get this like reference to the big shot from the movie. I don't know if they fully earned that reference because it's so distinctive in the movie and incredible. Um, but we get the shot of her falling and, you know, after she like gets the shot through the window is is escaping after the like sniper shot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which they also yeah, then they, kind of do in another episode in these six episodes, I think. <laughs> they reference it twice, um, which is just... Yeah, they're, you they're had, really... You had it one. You had one. <laughs> do it well that, that one time. Um. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the cross-cutting in this episode between, like, the major directing the military operations, like, what when they're preparing and then once they're allowed to actually go in, the episode does this cross-cutting that you're, like, referencing between like her commanding all of the members of section nine and them like, you know, doing their various operations and then Aramaki like navigating this political red tape. Um, and the cross cutting is making this link of like, yeah, this is all one battleground. Like, or the, or these are like, you know, both battles between two different like enemies. Yeah. And Aramaki's like role in this battle is to like, like battle the red tape yeah, and like interface with the government. And um, that's his like tactical role. And then the big thing revealed too here is the conversation with, which was not in the synopsis, but between Aramaki and the major where the major's like, it kind of seems like the prime minister is your type and you are like allowing yourself to, to perhaps be like, pulled in or like tricked by her like we need to keep an eye on her and i feel like you're not going to do it because she's too much like me a hot powerful lady um which is your (laughs) type uh she's just older like the woman that we met in um you know that in standalone complex in london or whatever um so yeah i like but that's also figuring in like, oh, but maybe the prime minister who seemed to kind of be on section nine side the most here is also someone to watch out for. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, all of that is happening yeah. in this episode. <laughs> and, and I think this is really like one of the key themes that is like coming out to me that I really want to focus on later. Um, I think this is an important point to like set up. Like yeah. to, to to be able to talk about that. Um, this suggestion, like, that, you know, that you were, again, making reference to, that the ultimate enemy, the final boss, is, like, the government, which yeah. was the case in, like, Standalone Complex. And then, like, the reiteration of that here becomes the grounds for, like, uh, one of the, like, major themes that I, I see happening. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I'll bring up is like I talked about it when we were kind of noodling around before the synopses, but um, one of the things that is immediately different about Second Gig is 
it foregrounds like the explicitly political and like international politics and world building to an immense degree. Yeah. Like way more than <laughs> anything we ever got in standalone complex. Yeah. Like we got like um, vague references to like a world war three with like very little information. And now we learn that like, okay, world war three was nuclear. World war four was non-nuclear, which is happening in the next episode. We learned that, but like, we're like, and we're like figuring out stuff about how like nuclear war affected the planet and everything like throughout these episodes. It yeah, it just immediately gets yeah. way more into like the history of this world, the politics of this world. Um this thing that comes up in this episode around the like refugee crisis is clearly if you've watched these six episodes going to be a key like theme and and topic throughout these this like entire season. Um Second gig is largely about a refugee crisis happening <laughs> and like different yeah. responses to it. Absolutely. And it's, it's so much more about like, not only uh, the like international political horizon and like the history, like the, you know, the world historical or whatever. Um, but there's also like, we get so much more like from the characters themselves, like explicit discussion of like politics, political analysis. Um, we get like characters from the government, like the, like the prime minister, for example, uh, being like major characters. Uh, when we see like the inner workings of the government to much greater degree, I mean, it, it's a major plot point here, right? Like, half the plot of this episode is the like legislative uh, treatment of like section nine and the tension of like, Oh, well you're not officially sanctioned group. So we can't allow you to do this. But like, you know, we see a government, like a a meeting, a cabinet meeting where like a debate occurs about section nine around this whole thing. And And we get like, explicit political like analysis from like Ishikawa and Bato and like the major. Yeah. Um, so it's just like the whole series is like inundated with like explicitly political content in a way that um, we haven't seen before. Um, but which I feel like is really interesting um, because a lot of what happens with that is um, some of these like political themes that were opened and like broached in standalone complex uh, are now like engaged with a lot more explicitly, like specifically stuff around like nationalism, uh, democracy, fascism, um and like you know so on and so forth um and and you know this like the refugee um crisis becoming like a focal point for all this thematic exploration of like these ideas yeah um one other thing that i think is different uh that's interesting to me is especially on this watch through um, me being more aware of how things are going to play out 
is I feel like the characterization of Major Kusanagi has actually changed a little. Um, subtly, but in a way that, um, you know, I talked a lot about the Major during Standalone Complex, and I feel like the, the final... The final image, like, I forget if there's anything immediately after this, but, like, one of the last times that we see her in Standalone Complex is that, like, extended conversation that she has with the Laughing Man. Um, or, you know, the original person who was the Laughing Man, Aoi. Yeah. Um, and they have this conversation, and it's a lot of, like, this discussion of, like, um, political theory and, like, philosophy, and there's this... Um, like breaking down and, and thinking through some of the stuff that happened in this, like, Oh, how did you return from like making yourself fully a part of the net? Like, Oh, here I've like this curiosity around what was happening with the Dachikoma. Um, like she's like this person by the end of standalone complex, who seems actually very interested in like thought. Um, and like thinking through things and like learning about things and trying to like, um, like, this is where I see some revolutionary potential budding in the major that at the end of standalone complex in second gig, there's this group of terrorists that are calling themselves the individual 11 and are talking about like the refugee crisis and are saying things like, even if we have failed in our uh, today in our mission, the individual Eagles will carry out our collective will. And she has no, I like she has no interest at all in the ideas that are being professed here. She's not trying to understand it at all. She's not taking any of it in, in a way where you would think she would be like more immediately like individual 11, <laughs> like when stuff comes up again. Um, like yeah, as we go into the episode, like it's funny how much like nobody seems to like remember like, Hey, that individual 11 logo was in the like, uh, you know, apartment, like for this one incident that happened, like remember that thing about the individual 11 that was like literally just episodes ago for us, I guess maybe it was years ago, but like, it's just funny how much major Kuzanaki just does not care and just like wants to bust in and kill people and like finish the job. Um, it's, it's very reminiscent of episode one of scandal and complex where she has that line where it's like, she blows the guy's foot off and he's like, I can't remember exactly what he says, but he's like, Oh, you know, like the system, he says something to the effect of like, wow, this is so unfair that I'm just getting my foot blown off by like a super cop. Yeah. And she's like, yeah, like, like if, if you don't like, if you want to complain about the system, you should just blame yourself instead. Yeah. (laughs) You should just fix it. Why have you not fixed it if you want this to be different? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very reminiscent of of her in like episode one where she's just like, yeah, fuck it, like I'm a cop, like you're arrested, yeah. like I don't give a fuck about your like ideology. Um, yeah, and so like for some to some degree, there it feels like there's been a rollback with Major Kusanagi's character, um, in a way that like I wish that more of that like that she has this like internal tension towards the end of standalone complex around like the stuff that she is learning from the laughing man and everything. Um, and we, we kind of talk about like to some degree, the tragedy of standalone complex is that like the impulse that's being represented by the laughing man just gets folded into like 
the section nine way of opposing things rather than like a more interesting, like truly revolutionary thing that could happen. Um, and some of it is like stuff like changes need to be institutionalized to persist. Um, and yeah, I think there's a loss there. And especially in this episode, you like feel like, oh, like nothing changed really <laughs> with the laughing yeah. man stuff. And like major Kusanagi is just back to like not fucking caring about anything and just wanting to, I think to the, like shoot dudes. <laughs> the one thing that is different, I would say, or the one thing that stands out like in on this subject is she's very critical of like, she's very suspicious and critical of like the events that are happening like yeah. throughout this episode i feel i if i remember correctly like she's constantly questioning like oh like hmm, that seems suspicious like there's like there must be something going on like beyond this uh like i, I wonder what the motivations are uh of like this or there but like we can't assume what the motivations are of this group like you know etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, it's not the same kind of like cu- critical curiosity that we see at the end of Standwell Complex, but it is like a much more open and aggressive suspicion of like the government itself. Yeah. Um, I think the one other thing here to l- maybe briefly touch on is the major literally hacking someone's brain. Um, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it's one of the things that's the most interesting because we saw her hack people a lot in standalone complex. Um, but we talked about how mostly it was women and it was usually like a, uh, Android, not like a, a human, not like a cyborg human. Um, and it was typically just to like see through someone's eyes basically. Um, in this one, we, we see her hack someone who she also comments on, like, basically just has a cyber brain and it is otherwise just, like, normal flesh and blood, um, like, not fully cyberized. And we get lots of shots of, like, the distress that he is in um, yeah. at this hacking. And, like, the, you know, at the end, she ends up um, having him shoot, like, all of the other people that he's with um, or a bunch of them. And then, like, get shot himself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which one is like extreme in a way that I feel like we have not seen her hacking people previously. Um, it's also interesting because I think this is the first time in like between standalone complex and second gig that we see her hacking the body of a man, um, which, you know, I kind of commented on like how frequently she is always like, Oh, I'm going to hack this like female service Android. Um, so yeah, it, like it's just this this interesting sequence. Um, I don't have like a ton to say about it, other than in some ways we're getting like the cyber brain figured, this horror of brain hacking. Um, yeah, we're getting some gender here, but not in as like um, concrete a way as I sometimes have for some of these. I guess. Um, yeah, I think it's it's introducing this this old theme from standalone complex of like the, the horror of like the vulnerability and the horror of like this merging of technological and biological um, and like what that means for like agency and consciousness and stuff. 
Yeah. Um, which is so that that theme a big part of standalone complex is also is continued <laughs> uh seemingly in second gig as well um this feels like the like warning shot where they're like oh yeah don't forget about this theme <laughs> um here's like this really shocking instance of it to remind you yeah uh so like you know don't forget that like this is also like kind of bad um yeah uh that's kind of yeah that that's my feeling on it um i also last point i want to make about this episode is um the uh current government um because i i think this is important context and i don't want to gloss over it um what one thing we learn in this episode is that the result of section nine's like like fight against the government in season one is that like the current government has taken power and the current government is like explicitly described as a reactionary like conservative regime that has replaced like what we learn now was a like you know at least supposedly like purportedly like liberal democratic regime yeah um so we get this very uh uh uncomfortable revelation (laughs) um at the start of second gate kind of setting the tone of like oh yeah so section nine like directly assisted or like caused the overthrow of like a democratic party in favor of like a reactionary like regime yeah um and i guess we'll see how that turns out um yeah i wonder if this will get tied into any historical events that actually happen in japan that will be brought up specifically in later episodes um anyway let's move on to episode two so episode two this is another individual episode um and the title is so these are the like translations that i've seen but this they kind of do the the ava thing where uh, ava does this as well where there's a japanese title and then also an english title like even in the original work so the first one well-fed me was the japanese title and then night cruise is in english um this is a shorter synopsis although i like this episode a fair amount um but this is this is from the website that i pulled it from uh, following the nuclear World War III and the non-nuclear World War IV, Japan passed an act known as the Refugee Special Action Policy, inviting war refugees from all across Asia to enter Japan. Thousands of Asian refugees took Japan up on the offer to enter their country and have taken low-paying jobs handed out to them by various companies looking for a cheap workforce. Gino, a combat pilot and World War IV veteran, is one such refugee working as a helicopter pilot for a corporate CEO. He is angry and depressed and plots revenge against Japanese society, starting with assassinating his employer. When Section 9 is sent to investigate his plots, Kusanagi ent- uh, eventually concludes that Gino lacks the fortitude to act out his fantasies and is just one in a long line of pitiful souls who dream about fulfilling goals they can never accomplish. Um... <laughs> some interesting things about the synopsis one is uh the actual episode is far more like so one it's kind of a reference to taxi driver um 
And similar to like, especially the ending of track taxi driver famously is like unclear what is reality and what is fantasy. Um, there's a lot of stuff that is revealed to be fantasy in this episode, but like it starts with the depiction of Gino, like assassinating his employer. And then it's revealed that that is like him thinking about like, God, I want to kill my boss basically. Um, <laughs> yeah. But there's, there's a lot of stuff that gets like vague and kind of dreamlike and uncertain, um, including the major Kusanagi shows up multiple times, seemingly as like a sex worker with sleek hair. Um, and there, there's some stuff that I'm sure we'll get into more around that. Uh, it's one of the things that I find most fascinating in this episode. Um, but, and like some of those unclear is like, is she like really doing this and like going around to all of this while they're like tracking this one guy? Um, I don't know. It seems weird to like have Bato <clears throat> pretending to be a, a pimp that he shows up at and everything. Like some of it is almost like. And this will come up in later episodes that we haven't gotten to yet that are individual episodes where they're kind of doing a movie pastiche or like reference to like a classic Western film. Um, this is going to come up with like full metal jacket later on um, in another one. And there yeah, are there's like, a, there's a, so there's yeah. a dreamlike quality around the like scenes with the major and Bato yeah. And, and the, like their presence. And they, and so this will come up in some of the other individual episodes If people will, will show up as characters, but in ways that don't necessarily make sense for the plot and um, are kind of figured as like being part of like a story being told later on um, in like a tongue in cheek way. But it, it's also happening here where it feels dreamlike. It doesn't really feel like this is happening, um, but they are still bringing in characters that we recognize. Um so yeah, it's it's an interesting episode. It, it's probably one of my favorite, um, along with episode three. I like a lot as well. Um, in the in second gig. Um, but yeah, I don't know if you have immediate thoughts, or I can just get into Major Kusanagi appearing as a sex worker. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll go through like a couple, um, just a couple things really quick. Yeah, I guess there's um, some other stuff that um I I might talk about to you before I get there that I think are, are worth foregrounding. Um, the other thing here that I want to, cause most people say that this is a reference to taxi driver and that is the more obvious poll, but I think there's also a little bit of blade runner here. Um, in the way that they're like talking about, um, like, especially the way that Gino talks about the major Kusanagi as this like sex worker that he's seeing. Um, and it's like truly human for being fully cyborg or whatever. Yeah. There's, um, yeah, this is this is an interesting episode. It it is kind of weird. Um, the experience of just watching Second Gig, when you get like episode one being like, oh, okay, yeah, I can see how this is playing on like, you know, continuity and and discontinuity, with like directly from season one, mm-hmm. and then you just get this thing that's like completely, like, out of place. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like very totally different, um, yeah. or or not like you know completely totally different, but like operating in a <laughs> mode of like narrative story uh, storytelling that just heretofore like standalone complex never really did. Um, For sure, it, um, it has always up until this point, I think, felt far more grounded in we are seeing real things. Um, 
sometimes things will be disorienting, like the the big fight with the um, that one like revolutionary guy who is being um, uh, Marco. The yeah, Marco. Of Marco. Um, but like that was the reality, right? Even though it was like disorienting yeah. for a moment. Whereas this is actually showing us like in interior fantasies that someone's having and blending those in weird ways and uncertain ways with the actual reality that's happening. Um, yeah, for sure. The whole episode is like, like it split, you know, but between like, I mean, the vast majority of it is like this fantasy. Um, and then like this internal monologue, uh, from this character who's like not an in character. Yeah. Uh, and then like, with you know the main characters like brought into it in this weird like vague unclear way um but uh yeah i think just to run through like the points the the things i thought were interesting here um so the um like in this episode we get this background where i think for the first time it is like one of these world wars, I can't remember if it's three or four, is named as, like, the Second Vietnam War. Um, there is a... Uh, and then, of course, the episode, like, the English title is Night Cruise. Um, it's, all of this is very reminiscent of the Jungle Cruise episode. Yeah. Um, in, like, you know, in season one, um, which now in retrospect stands out as one of the episodes from season one that like more explicitly engaged like the world historical and questions of like nationalism um yeah that and and the the one with the um son who's like kind of combining with his father yeah those are like the two big historical ones Yep, and we will. I will return to that episode. Uh, I <laughs> I expect probably more than once um, yeah. as we go through second gig because they. When we did season one, you know, I think we. We tried to talk about those episodes. You know, in detail and, and really flesh out like, everything that was going on, but they still, couldn't help but feel like a little bit out of place. Um, because of like their different focus, um, compared to the rest of season one. Yeah. But now, like in second gig, they they feel very significant, um, because second gig is a lot more aligned with like the kind of stuff that those episodes were doing. Um, so here it feels to me like a direct um reference to Jungle Cruise, um, and I think that a, a meaningful connection is like being made here um and and also this episode also like deals with you know uh like the trauma of like you know combatants uh like veterans um like the the trauma of like political like you know interstate violence like war in other words is what i'm trying to say yeah um so that's a huge part of this episode um that you know warrants has a lot going on around it um and then i think 
there this episode also through like Gina's many monologues um he's he has this kind of complex stance that is I, I would say loosely revolves around like anti cyberization yeah um, but is is more complicated than that um but the these monologues all like raise these questions um the themes of like season one uh the you know the the dangers of like cyberization what it means for agency consciousness um but uh one interesting point that comes out of this is like the capitalist uh dimension of this which is you know um when brains and bodies become technological products that are like designed and manufactured by corporations, how does that affect consciousness? Um, you know, when, when we're dependent on corporations uh, to literally constitute our like very being, uh, and then also they have, you know, the ability to like design uh, our bodies and brains and, you know, whatever way that they want, um, or to whatever ends, um, there, uh, I think there's certainly some problems that we could talk about, (laughs) um, with that concept. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, Gino says, uh, one of the things that he, you know, lands down on is like, that happiness itself um, in the society is like an artificial construct created by cyber brains and cyber cybernetic bodies. Um, You know, so raising the question of like, okay, are we literally just programmed because of the like, you know, technology that we are like constituted from now? Um, Are we, are are we being programmed to be like passive um, or like compliant with whatever, you know, the powers that be uh, want for us? Um, and is our happiness itself like now defined by, uh, you know, defined by them? Yeah. Um, so this kind of like loss of um, control to uh, institutional forces through like dependence on you know cyber experience and bodies um and then this like uh i think this is probably the most important point for the stuff we see actually happening at second gig um you know when generally speaking like when people on the mass scale you know lose agency um and perceive that um, that they've lost control of their lives to institutional forces. Um, you know, there's a, there, there's a erosion. There can be an erosion of democracy, right? Like, uh, there can be a reactionary response to that. Um, and then just fundamentally, like, you know, in this kind of situation, like democracy, the possibility for democracy itself is eroded because people are, um, you know, they, they're controlled, you know, to a greater degree than, than in the past. 
Um, yeah. So, like, all of this shit is in the mix, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> well, and so this is tying into, like, some of the other... Like, uh, the other part I want to bring up that's happening around cyberized bodies here, um, because I think it's going to return in, in some various ways, and it's also tying into some of, like, what's happening with the major here, is... So I've written down this part of, like, why do they still need to eat when they don't need to? Um, which, you know, there's this scene where he's watching people eat, and, like if they have a cyberized body, there are different ways that they can get energy for that body, presumably. Um, and so why are people still eating? Um, but there, there's this, like, this is going to come up in some of the other episodes as well. There's the sense. I'm like, I said the word, but like there, there are these different levels of, uh, um, access to human senses. Um, and like the way that people can control them or, or, um, like, affect them uh so like next episode there's gonna be a comment from major kusanagi of like her being able to turn off her touch receptors the people can like Mm -hmm. um and this comes up later too about like turning off your your smell receptors or something um in a a later episode as well that like these cyberized bodies can like more uh often pick and choose like what sensations they have access to but um importantly Gino has actually lost some of this access to it because we see, um, so, you know, Kusanagi is showing up seemingly as this like sex worker with this, like, you know, it's very similar to her haircut, but it's far more sleek. Um, it's not quite as like, uh, it's like a lot of product or like a lot of straightener happening in her hair and it's shorter. It's like a little bit more of a bob than she normally wears. Um, and she's, like, always kind of wearing, like, furs and this, like, very sex worker vibe thing that you might expect from a work like this. Um, and we get the scene where Gino is unable to afford the major and, like, basically gets kicked out by Bado, um, which, again, unclear the full reality of that scene. Um, but then she goes to another place and there's another sex worker who looks kind of like the major, but obviously is, like, not as... Uh, like m- matching up to these uh, societal ideas of beauty um, that like Major Kusanagi seems to embody for him and also is kind of drawn this way in the, the anime. Um, and so, and he's having these like, com- like when he sees the major, um, which I think he doesn't even know like the name of this, this sex worker basically. Um, but is saying like, despite all of the sustain he has for other cyborgs is saying like, Oh, she's the only person who is certain that, that she's human. Like she's like basically above everyone else in this society, despite being fully cyberized. Um, so there's also this like weird tension that's happening there around to some degree, also this desire. Um, but then this also, gets figured when he then goes to that other sex worker and there's this comment of like, well, what else can we do? And we get like the shot of, uh, he's like basically just a Ken doll down there. Like, I don't even know if the, that's actual underwear, if that's just what his body looks like. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's like very clear that like, he doesn't have genitals. He can't have sex. Um, at least like not sex that would involve a penis. Um, you know, there are other sex acts that he could certainly partake in, but, um, and so there's a, there's a cutting off of like, a a very, for many people, key 
sensation and like part of like human experience. Um, obviously there are people who are asexual and don't want this, but it's clear he does. Um, and it's this thing that's been cut off and he isn't able to access because of like his position as this war veteran who lost his legs. Um, there's almost kind of a joke or like the, this reference that, that happens at the end of like, Oh, he didn't even lose like his legs and stuff like that section. He didn't lose that in combat. He lost that to an STD. Um, that's like why he sub cyberized, um, at the very end. So, but like, so, so there's this weird, um, there's a lot of this focus that's happening around like, why would people be eating? Why would he with the cyberized body, like if he's saying like, Oh, if the bodies are, are constructed, then like they can have this constructive pleasure or this like constructed happiness, but then he's actually Mm -hmm. unable to access it because of his cyberized body. So I think this is like also further complicating and messing with these things and also tying it into a, a very, you know, a lot of the stuff that you're talking about, which is very valid and stuff that's happening here, but it is more this like, Oh, here's all these anxieties, like these political anxieties around the cyberized body, but we're also getting these like, anxieties around like actual just like human sensations and what can human Mm -hmm. bodies do um and how does like cyberization process like how does this also become in the way that still even today where you know there are some stuff that's like venturing into cyberized bodies in our current society like pacemakers like hearing aids like especially hearing implant stuff that people can have that can like restore hearing um these are all things that are like actually moving into this territory of cyberized bodies, but not to like the extent that we obviously see in ghost of the shell. Um, yeah, but like this stuff is kind of being brought in and it's also talking about these things of disability, which also just exist outside of like cyborg technology that even exists in the real world. Like there, there are still ways that class and disability and those things play into like what is accessible to different people, like what pleasures and, and what experiences and what like even people are allowed to, to do. Um, and so that's also being brought into this. Like he, he is a disabled veteran. And even if the show at the end reveals it's through an STD um, and, and there's also more gesturing to like, a lot of the people who are being employed in this like helicopter thing or like through this refugee program are because of like military programs cyberized to some degree. Right. And that's part mm-hmm. of what makes them a, like an attractive workforce is that they have some degree of cyberization, but we are also and getting we, a clear uh, distinction we, we... between what they have is different than what major Kuzanagi has been able to, to access. She has this like far superior thing where, you know, a, a thing that comes up again and again, and I was already kind of gesturing at, like, I feel like sometimes gets like pushed at in, um, in standalone complex, but second gig, especially episode two and episode three, like heavily implies that the model that she has is a model that is like designed to be able to have sex, um, is potentially even like a model, uh, of like chassis that sex workers would use. And she chooses this body and is like, you know, has augmented it in other ways to be a, also a super cop, but like her, her body is being marked out as being like specifically sexual in both this episode and the next episode we're going to talk about. Um, and especially that, in contrast to, yeah, to genus. Yeah. And that also being in some way tied to like these other ways that she has this like 
good, desirable, strong, um, like this body that can do these like super cop feats as well that like Bato has, right? Um, yeah. She she is like superhuman in this way of like both in not only in like strength and things, but also in sexuality. Um, and and this is like also being brought in here, and I think is a thing that the series will talk about and. I will have more thoughts as we go on, but um, I think it's, yeah. it's really figured here heavily. Uh, for sure. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think the, um, the, the one other thing I want to touch on for this episode is the conclusion where, um, which, you know, we kind of talked about, but um, there's this really, there's a very dark, ironic conclusion um, where like, you know, the end of the episode, we get uh, a conversation between Kusanagi and Bato, where Kusanagi is basically like, oh, yeah, you know, this guy's not dangerous at all. He's too, like, weak or whatever. He doesn't have the wherewithal to, yeah. like, do anything dangerous. Yeah, I have this quote um, that I'll read from the Major. He's just one of countless numbers of pitiful souls who harbor faint dreams of greatness and is frustrated by reality. He'll never carry out his plan. Um, there's, like, maybe a little bit of dialogue, and then he says he's a member of the proletariat, uh, or ma- the Major says he's a member of the proletariat who is pathetically out of touch with reality. Um, and specifically, the proletariat, too, just, like, feels... <laughs> super on the nose charged uh-huh <laughs> yeah and um in light of like what we've been trying to set up in this discussion um it it feels like this episode is really dealing with um powerlessness yeah. um like the the relative powerlessness at like the intersection of like these various um you know forces that we're talking about. Um, but so much of the episode is about like, we see Gino having robust internal monologue, um, deeply like intellectually and emotionally engaged with like philosophically engaged with, uh, you know, society, like the world around him, all these things going on. Um, so much of the episode is, is about this. Um, and then, like, at the end of the episode, we get this very abrupt break, this kind of reframing, um, and this, like, eulogy by the major being like, oh, yeah, no, this guy is just completely, like, un- like out of touch and unaware. Um, and it's it's jarring. Um, yeah. Because, you know, after we've seen all, all of this, like, deep thought and engagement... Um, to then have that be reframed as like, you know, pointless, um, it really forces the viewer to reckon with like the extreme disparities of power that exist in this society, um, where like someone, you know, even like Gino, who is trying so hard to like, to engage with reality and to understand um, is still like completely dejected um, and powerless in the face of like someone like the major Um, or, or like section nine generally. Um, 
And this, I think, explains, like, I think this is you know part of the point of the episode, what it does, but it also explains the way the episode is structured, where Gino is constantly, like, hallucinating, traveling into flights of fancy, um, because, like, this is all he can do. Yeah. Um, he's, like, has so little agency, um, or, you know... Maybe, maybe not, but, you know, this is what the episode is setting up. Like, he has so little agency that, you know, he's he's forced to, like, his consciousness is forced to split, um, to cope. Uh, and, and all he can do is, like, take solace in, um, you know, these flights of fancy where he indulges, like, all of, you know, where he works out his anxieties, whether they're, you know, sexual, um, violent, you know, like a you know, violent lashing out. Um, but all of these anxieties around the various deprivations um, associated with his lack of agency. Um, and it feels like this kind of zooming in of like, oh yeah, here's one individual, like episode one, we're going to set up all of this, like, you know, this, these problems, political problems and social problems. And then episode two, we're going to zoom in on this one guy who like, you know, and and do all these things by zooming in on him to really like illustrate, you know, the specific like we're moving from the general to the specific. Um yeah. to give you like a bigger picture of like what this what like the society is like and what um you know what's happening with like individual people yeah. uh, right now. There's also shades of um I'm like trying to pull. I think it's uh, Sato Takao, um, the this author who wrote about. Uh, it was on Ninkyo, and it was about like the the form of um, Ninkyo, which is a, a like genre convention or like form of genre specifically with yakuza stuff um, in Japan. I made this argument that I I broadly agree with, and I think that a lot of interesting stuff that happens in yakuza film is like um, addressing this and trying to talk about this which is that um the sato like makes this argument that basically this this form of like melodramatic yakuza story is inherently fascistic because it is a story about like watching someone who can kill their boss um but also that person being a criminal and that person being figured as like someone who's like criminal and doing criminal behaviors and we can look at them as like this this heroic folk figure who can do the revolutionary acts that we want to do of like standing up against the actual oppressive systems that are are like that common people struggle against the the like evil boss or the terrible landlord or things like that. Um, and in that process becomes this release valve because it, it allows you to like experience the story where the bad people get their comeuppance, but not in a way that like actually figures it as anything that is like actionable for you. It is just like an entertaining thing. And I think there's also a certain amount of that happening here of like, not to like this direct degree, but like, I think some of what this episode is also talking about is the way that like, yes, he has the fantasy, like he is a guy who wants to kill his boss, but never will. And that's what major Kusanagi can see that he is like someone who very desperately hates the system that he is in, but is never actually going to do the things that would like 
bring about any sort of change. Um, he's just yeah. kind of miserable and just like dreams of being the kind of guy who could like start a revolution. Um, but that is like a, that is an idle dream. That is not like an actual um, achievable thing for him, both because he like doesn't have the political power. Like at most he is like the, the other guy who, again, we also don't know is even real or is this part of his fantasy who we see like, you know, did some sort of attack and the news is like blaming on the terrorists. Um, and he's like gesturing at the camera, um, who's like one of the other helicopter pilots. Um, but like, that's the most that he could have like hoped for is like, maybe he kills his boss and then like feels like a hero and goes to prison. Right. Um, like he's in terms of the actual societal order, Gino is not a threat, even if he even acted on what he's dreaming of. Um, he's never going to like actually be a political threat. Um, at most he will like cause a small terrorist incident. Um, and even that they kind of deem as like, no, he's not going to, um, yeah, there's some way that he's like too like beaten down and deprived. Yeah. Like to even like put this to even affect this. Yeah. Like even though he theoretically could, he'd just pick up a gun and shoot him. Like he's like been so psychologically, and emotionally uh like conditioned or like you know suppressed or what have you um that he doesn't even like realistically have the agency to do that yeah um yeah i think i think this episode is like i don't i don't know if it i don't think it enacts like the dynamic that you were describing but yeah. I think, like, it, I think that is, like, a subject of the episode, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it, that it, it is, is, like, in what the this space of, like, what it's talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, even though um, this isn't, like, about Ninko as, like, a release valve of uh, revolutionary impulses in order to, like, continue the fascistic impulse or whatever. Like, that's not what this yeah. episode is about, but I think that kind of dynamic and that kind of... Um, I think recurring concern for like that, that exists in Japanese intellectuals. It it is a recurring thing that comes up in like Japanese discussion around Yakuza cinema, for example, but also other things. Um, It like, I, I think there is some amount that like the way that Japan has thought and talked about like the rise of fascism in Japan and the way that like, um, you know, this also happens, and, and I think in a way that might be more accessible to Western readers around, like, Krakauer was this film theorist who did one of the first, like, surveys of national cinema and wrote about German cinema and specifically the cinema of the, the Weimar Republic and how it's, like, apoliticism in many uh, aspects or it's, like, it, it's, like, focus on entertainment um, over like having actual political things to say was a, a thing that p- perhaps like could contribute to, or like is either symptomatic or both symptomatic and, um, contributing to actively like a culture that further enabled the rise of like the Nazi party. Um, this is like a famous film text. Uh, if you, if you've studied extensively, like ideas of national cinema, it's a big one that comes up. Um, and so I think like that stuff also happens in Japan around like what was media occurring around the time of world war two. And I think that 
this show is interested in it because we're going to get to the episode that talks about an incident that like was leading into the rise of fascism in Japan around World War II. So, um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know if you, if we want to move on, but like, again, I don't think yeah. it's like fully doing the Aninkyo thing. I'm partially in bringing this in is just like, if people listen to ornate stairwells, they've heard me talk about this. So here's this like, <laughs> reference point. I can immediately point to of like, the way that the rise of fascism is sometimes thought about and talked about in relation to media in Japan. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a revealing like comparison to, to help, you know, flesh out like what's going on in, um, in the episode for sure. Yeah. Um, I love also, episode too. <laughs> I, I, I just fucking love ghost in the shell. Yeah. Um, it's, it's amazing that, I mean, I know that you're kind of not thrilled with second gig, I, Fully, I'm but... I'm grumbling, but some of it is um, some of it is like put upon and just joking because okay I would yeah. if I just was not doing a podcast I would rather just rewatch Standalone Complex than watch Second Gig again. But um, I still really like Ghost in the Shell. Um, it, it just I still it enjoy this as a show. <laughs> like it feels good to like because it's been so long since we did season one. It feels good to be back in Ghost in the Shell and just be like, yeah talking about all this shit that's going on because there's there's a lot um it's yeah it's just fun uh i just yeah. really i like ghost in the shell we named the podcast um, after the series so <laughs> <laughs> um yeah if if that yeah if it wasn't clear enough already i love ghost in the shell yeah um so episode three uh it's a individual episode um uh the Two titles are uh, Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, and then uh, Cash Eye. Uh, so uh, a formal investigation into millionaire businessman Tadakora has yielded evidence that he may be managing former Secretary General Yakushima's assets. Um, this prompts the government uh, to launch its own investigation into the allegations, but there are two problems. Uh, first, Tadakora's vault is state-of-the-art, and only he can access the assets in the vault. Uh, it's a real Ocean's Eleven type deal here. Yeah. Um, the other more immediate concern is that a hacker and thief by the name of Cash Eye plans on infiltrating the vault uh, during an exclusive uh, quote-unquote high society party um, to keep Cash Eye from stealing and or destroying valuable evidence. Section 9 is called in to prevent the theft. Uh, however, uh, ultimately we find out the Cash Eye threat is revealed to be just part of this complex ploy by section nine um, to get into the vault and uh, like find this cache of illegally laundered money. Um, and, and Kusanagi of course is the hacker cash. I, um, so they, it's funny uh, how obvious she is throughout all of this. It's just <laughs> for sure. Like to the extent that like, cause the episode opens with, like someone who looks very much like Kusanagi doing things that are like very much what we would expect Kusanagi and only Kusanagi to be able to do. Yeah. But she's just like wearing a helmet or something. Yeah. And, and on like, camera, oh, we don't know who it is. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's a mystery. And they and get the, the footage of- on camera and the guys like talking about the footage on camera to Aramaki and major Kusanagi who's in the room. Um, it's just, yeah, yeah it's funny. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is really funny. Like, and when I watched this, it was obvious to the extent of me being like, "Whoa!" Like, 
is there something actually like really complicated that they're going to do with this <laughs> that like i'm not even like you're like yes of course obviously it's kusanagi but like is there something really complicated about like why it's not that i'm like missing um and then like i'm just sitting there the whole episode being like like what is going on yeah and then I, it's just like oh yeah it's kusanagi i know that um like oceans 11 is often a call out that people do when they talk about this episode um but it's also referencing a uh anime from the 80s called cat's eye um like the calling uh, card is a reference to it the name is obviously a reference to it and part of me wonders if some of it is almost just a joke on like i haven't seen cat's eye but i wonder if one of the things is that like the the secret thief is just very obviously also this person but nobody like seems to recognize it in a way that i could really see in just like a corny 80s anime um so some of it is i wonder if it's a joke um the other part i forget did did you finish the synopsis or did i (laughs) did i completely um, yeah so so um (laughs) at the end they like trick tadakoro into opening his own vault and then they're just like gotcha yeah Yeah, this is the this is the money that we were looking for like you're arrested we're cops um part of Um, me also wonders if because We'll get into more stuff that's happening with Major Kusanagi here, but if also part of the the thing that's happening here that they're like trying to sort of jokingly call attention to is that um, Tadokoros just seems so like deeply misogynistic and just like fucking horned up for like cyborg androids and stuff in this way that like he's just like not even thinking about like Major Kusanagi and this like thief has like necessarily like he's like oh for someone to have been able to break in here it must have been a really talented male hacker uh who's just like using (laughs) this cyborg body um and i can tell i'm horny for that cyborg body so it must be like just a not even a cyborg it must just be an android that he's hacking into and look you've got this hot android here too and major kusanagi being like no i'm i'm a cyborg i don't have the white blood or whatever which is a new detail introduced here. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, th- there is definitely an aspect of, like, he's so, like, misogynistic and just purely, inve- like, fixated on her as a sexual object that he, like, is just blind to, like, the possibility of her, like, being anything else, including, yeah. like, the hacker who's totally fucking up his shit. <laughs> Because, yeah, the other um, the other thing that doesn't get mentioned really in the synopsis that I, I copy and pasted is that, like, this is happening. So the the like we're at this event, this high society, exclusive high society party to infiltrate the vault. The exclusive high society party is basically like a orgy where these rich guys are bringing their like robot sex dolls, basically. Um, and Major Kusanagi, like, enters the event sort of almost as, like, Aramaki's plus one. Proposing as, yeah. Yeah. Um, which, there's, like, lots of interesting things that happen around there. Um, one is just her being figured, once again, as, like, having a, a, a body built for sex work, now instead of like a sex worker but like just being like a sex doll but again that's like being directly figured um the like way that all of the people in the van who are like the other members of section nine are like oh look at all these like lifeless sex dolls this is so pathetic blah blah blah. and then it's like there's major kusanagi Woo, she's hot 
it's just <laughs> something's happening there. Something's happening. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. 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 Bato and Togusa watching. Um, and this episode is bizarre for me. It's an episode that um, I feel like there are interesting things happening here. And I just wish that the the series developed it more. Because um, there, there's stuff happening around like she's being like not only leered at, but also like groped by men as she's entering this party and just talks about how she can like turn off the senses so she doesn't have to feel it. Um, and then also there's this like her sort of seducing Tadokoro to like try to, you know, knock him out basically. Um, and seems very comfortable just like apparently giving him a simulation of having sex with her. Um, as part of that, there's like a moment where, so the, the like actual scenario is like, oh, you really like basically having sex with like bodies when they're, they're turned off. Right. Like you, you enjoy the sex doll that is like lifeless. So what if I like, what if what I do is I actually like give you the sensation of what the doll would have. And so you're going to plug into me and I'm just going to like shut off basically. Um, but then you can also experience my sensations seems to be what she's offering if i if i remember yeah. correctly um i think my and memory of it is they they plug well, in because we'll it's yeah it's like a connecting they they plug in um you know they like connect with the little neck jacks um and then she like knocks him out and basically puts in a like some sort of simulation so that he doesn't realize that's what happened um and presumably has some sensation of like actually getting to do whatever he wants which I, the big thing I'm saying here before you, you do anything else is like, there's this weird figuring of like Kusanaki being fully willing to just like subject herself to the, these like sexual advances, sexual harassment, everything. Like she, she comments on it at moments, but like being fully willing to, for her job of like, I'm going to infiltrate, um, in a way that is, um, I, I just want to bring up here, uh, it's a thing that, like, one, I wish they did more in this episode, and then I feel like I want to, like, put a pin down of, like, how stuff is being handled here as we get into stuff later on in the series, but... Yeah, it. I think there's an aspect of this where she's, like, fully in control of the situation, you know what I mean? Like, mm. even even as she's being subjected to, like the grouping and like the sexual harassment which she she literally says like this is a like this is sexual harassment um but the way she's saying it is almost like like this is like she's manipulating him to as part of the mission like and all of his actions in this moment are like either expected or like you know according to plan uh and like at any moment you know she can like kill or incapacitate him like she's not really you know because the like power disparity between them is like what it is tadakoro does not perceive that but we as the viewer know that and kusanaki knows that and like we we realize you know when she like incapacitates him that like you know she's been in control of this situation the entire time. Um, so yeah. there's like, th- there's a weird, 
there's a weird aspect of this where it's like, you know, she's positioned as like, she's posing as the sex doll. She's in this context. And then she's subjected directly to like the sexual harassment of Tadakora. But like her, like she's also kind of like, you know, uh, She's kind of in control. <laughs> She's yeah. kind of the one in control here. Um, so there's like a, a kind of weird aspect of it. Um, Though, and I, so, I, I guess like two. One is I, I think there's a. So one of it is that this is a show primarily being made by men. And so I think like what you're saying is true. Um, I also think that there is a. Um, there, there's a tone of this that can go in the direction of like. Uh, women just can use sex to control men and that aren't like, that isn't like actually fully understanding the the complexities of that because um, there is a certain amount of like power that uh, in society women can exert against men that is based around like a sexual desire for women and, and like women's like the way that, that sex is positioned as like a thing that women have more control over that they are like the ones who like permit or deny sex and that men are always horny. And this is of course, like this is a way that like gender and sexuality is constructed. That's not actually the like true way that like human beings express desire or the way that it should be that like, there are lots of women who get horny and are not able to like have that fulfilled and stuff. But like the way that socially societally it is understood is that like, men are always horny and always want sex and women don't, and they get to control when that sex happens. And that's like the, a power that women hold that idea around sex is actually like part of a broader system of like patriarchy. And it it is not actually like this true power that a lot of women are holding. Um, and so part of it is that like the framing of this is like the power that she has is tying into like, this kind of patriarchal view of female sexuality in a way that I think could be developed interestingly, but I don't know how much this show is like complicating a little bit, but I don't know how much it's like actually really digging into it in a way that would feel really like meaty and they are, they are concerned in thinking about this and they are like really complicating it and, and like addressing this. Um, I think it's being brought in and there's some stuff that's interesting with it, but I also think that it, is handled somewhat weakly, at least from my perspective. Um, so the, uh, the part that I find somewhat interesting here that I, I do want to say though, is that to some degree, her being a, a woman who's like in control of her sex and is being able to use it as part of her job is yet another thing that is figuring her as being akin to sex workers um, in a way that is interesting. But Again, there's like, and some of this is me knowing other stuff that's going to happen later in the series. I don't think that the mm-hmm. series actually handles Major Kusanagi's sexuality very well overall. Um, in a way that I think Standalone Complex touched on, but never got as deep as the series is going to get. And because of that, like, as it gets deeper, I, I am more skeptical of like, like this episode I think is interesting and is doing starting to do interesting things. And I'm not sure that we will agree that it like fully pays it off, but maybe it'll, it's a thing that we'll argue about. But um, there's one episode in particular that I'm sure you're also going to agree is like 
kind of fucked up. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh god! Just okay. a yeah, just a, a like heads up. Um, people who okay. have listened to content warnings that you have not gotten yet, um, but that were in the intro episode, will maybe have an idea of what's coming. <laughs> okay, um, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. Um, I. I, this is like mar- marginally in defense of. I, I really shouldn't even frame it that way. Th- this is the way that I consider this episode because I do think it's doing like some larger things ar- around this, all of this stuff that that you're bringing up. Yeah. Bearing in mind all of this, all everything that we set up in our discussion episode two around like, you know, exploitation, like power agency, etc. This episode is like, I also, I think is also deeply concerned with the social, um, the sociopolitical and like power dynamics, but pans over to like, look at how these power dynamics are like reflected through sexuality. I, so I don't think it's coincidental that like, the main setting of this episode, like the major plot point is this like, again, quote unquote, high society gathering, which we are told very uh, clearly is like the gathering of like the preeminent, like political and economic elite in this society. Like in other words, like the powers that be like the oligarchs who rule this, like this country. And like, it is a meeting that is like emblematic of their control because we're also told that like, this is a, me- a place where they like conduct business and like make decisions. And it's like integral to their like association, like as this power block, but like the defi- the other definitive aspect of this like event is like sexual exploitation of like women yeah. or you know like like sex dolls who are like you know designed as like female figured as female yeah. um so like we immediately get this like very direct connection between like patriarchal like violence sexual exploitation and then also like the violence of like oppression, like sociopolitical and like class oppression that is enacted by like these same, like, you know, elite classes. Like it's just, it's the same, like, like oppression, but it's, or it's, you know, the same like source of oppression, but it's like manifested in like these different realms. Um, and then, like, Tadakoro becomes the the figure of this, um, where he's, like, obsessed with control in various ways. Like, it's symbolized in his vault, um, you know, his, his money. He's obsessed with controlling money, uh, but he's also obsessed with, like, controlling other people and being able to exploit them. Yeah. Um, as, like, all of these men are. Uh, and the which brings me back to the dialogue between him and Kusanagi, which I may be misremembering, um, but 
my memory of it is she is like uh he's like you know oh let's have sex like groping her blah 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 um and she's like oh like i think what you want is to like you know have sex with me like while i'm empty or like you know but you want me to turn my body into like a, a doll and that's what you want yeah and then he's like oh yeah like that's exactly what i want like or like oh yeah that's what i want you're right and then she's like no i i actually know what you really want which is you want me to be fully conscious like i'm gonna pretend to be a doll but you want to treat a, a, a fully conscious human like you want to turn a fully conscious human into a doll and that's what really turns you on and then he's like oh yeah you're right <laughs> That, like, that actually is more of a turn-on for me. Um, and then she, like, you know, knocks him out or whatever. Um, yeah. But, like, that dialogue... Again, I may be misremembering, but... Yeah, I'm, like, pulling um, up the transcript as you're talking, so maybe I can, I can read through this in just a sec. Um, if I okay. get there. Um, but I'll just finish my thought, and then we can evaluate if, I'm, you know, if my memory is correct or not. Um but that dialogue feels very significant for me, like, in the context of all this stuff that I'm trying to, like, you know, describe, um, like, as a critique of, like, the pathology of oppression, um, the pathology of, like, patriarchy, um, and then the ways that that's tied into, like, you know, um, social oppression uh, and then just like general like um, aristocratic or like oligarchic rule, um, where like what what we see these men do and what we see Tadagoro like do and want is this utter like exploitation, this like sadism of turning like conscious people uh, completely of bending them to their will. Um, you know, sexually and otherwise. Um, and I think that's like, for me, that's what's happening um, in, in all of this. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of like, that's kind of my read <laughs> um, yeah. of, of what's going on here. And I, I see it as like uh, a, a development with like, you know, on what we've already seen in the prior episodes. Yeah, here's the so I think you're you're correct. Here's the the stuff from so uh, the major. I believe what you really want is to make love to my body while it's empty. Am I right, uh, Tadokoro? I see that you have a good grasp on the proclivities of men such as myself. There's no fooling men you, such there? as myself. Yeah. That's right, exactly. Um, yeah, and then the major. Maybe I could interest you in doing that the opposite way. Have you ever tried playing with the, uh, the human being the way that you want with a puppet? Um, Totokoro, hmm. And then the major, I can lie as still as a statue for you with all of my sense organs turned on. Um, and then he's like making horny sounds, basically. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna read these words in here, but they are horny sounds. Um, and then, uh, in the script here, then the major, sorry, lover, but I'll let you keep going in that way. Um, or if I let you keep going in that way, you would have gotten to, 
<laughs> you would have gone into Karadagak arrest. Uh, you can pick up where we left off in your dreams. Um, and then chief, I've got this retinal and cyber or his retinal and cyber brain patterns. Um, and then they, you know, continue on with their mission. Um, this is an interesting transcript because I think it's pulled from the subtitles. So you don't get like, it's not like a script where you get like, and then this thing happens. It's literally just the lines, but um, anyway. So yeah, and um, I think those are from the subtitles, which may or may not be the, the, um, well, this might be slightly edited because I don't know the version that you have. The version that I have, they spell Bato, B-A-T-E-A-U, which is just not oh, how I'm no, ever going to spell Bato. Um, no, yeah. I don't, that, I, I remember well enough from a week, like a week ago. <laughs> That's not how my, my yeah. subtitles spell Bato. Um, Mine are like a, a Blu-ray release that I got, but I, it's not the greatest release. Um, I will just say that. Um, so yeah, there's some like the the subtitles aren't always great. Um, like they they're fine, but they don't feel as good as the standalone complex subtitles um, that I have on DVD. Um, and the other thing that's really annoying is that if you like try and like skip ahead, like you know how you can like skip chapters it's just mm-hmm. individual episodes like it'll just go to the next episode it's not like let me jump to the you know commercial break point let me jump to the end credits let me jump to the the um the tachikomatic days section which is how the dvds worked so um yeah i don't know if i'd recommend the at least whatever blu-rays i have it's like the the single blu-ray collection where you know it's like a single um, not a single disc, but like a single thing. It's not like a box set. You heard it here, people. So, Don't buy it. Um, I mean, it, it's fine. I can, yeah, it's just not, it's just not the best. <laughs> um, anyway, I don't know if uh, you have more here. Um, I guess I'll just say with some of this stuff is like, yeah, I agree. This is interesting stuff that's happening here. Um, at the same time, I'm also getting some flashbacks to when we did 08 them as team of like, let's wait and see if they develop those themes about <laughs> sexuality more. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Which, um, which they might like, I, I might change my, my picture. There's just stuff in here that I, I'm like, I'm always going to be upset about stuff that they do with major Kusanagi in this this in second gig so um it's okay. one of fair, my biggest qualms so um yeah i'll keep that in mind when um when i'm going through yeah um, I, i'm sure i'm sure i'll know pretty quick you know <laughs> there there's which, one which one you're talking about there's like one big thing that i think we might have like we could have diverging takes on i there's something that's going to develop around her character and another key character um that I sometimes have conflicting feelings about, but I generally don't like the direction that the, the series goes. Um, there's another thing that's just gross. It's just gross. Um, so we'll get there. Okay. <laughs> uh, um, do we want to do episode four? Or? The only other thing I'll add is um, the, um, I it's, it's almost just like a preparatory comment. Um, in, how should I frame this? Um, in this episode, the section nine like becomes basically protection for this like corrupt, you know, financial mogul who has government ties. They're asked by the government 
to like you know protect this guy um and no one is really happy about it uh but or or you know like the concept of doing this we we do figure out at the end like oh it's a fake out it's a sting so they're not really like you know doing this in the way that we thought um but this is like a portent of uh later developments i think which is like one of these key themes that i'm working up to um of like section nine being used by the government um and like uh whereas like standalone complex a key theme that we talked about and a big part of the drama is section nine's dislocation from the government um and then like it becoming adversarial like the more that they're removed or they remove themselves and that kind of being the big threat um it seems to me after six episodes that second gig is playing with a reverse motion where the danger becomes section nine becoming actually assimilated by the government by this you know evil government or whatever um being progressively brought in closer and closer um is kind of like this danger um so i don't know we'll see um so on the topic of section nine being used by members of the government let's get into our first (laughs) episode that's a dual episode i.e about the evil sis goda yeah Um, bastard yeah that's how he'll be referred to from now on yeah so episode four as I said, this is a dual episode. Uh, the The two titles are the same. So the Japanese title is Natural Enemy, and then in English, Natural Enemy, all caps. <laughs> in all um, caps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so th- this is one of the biggest examples of... It's not that I'm not interested in some of the political stuff. It's just that I would not be able to like know all of the stuff that's happening in terms of political intrigue and the like details that these synopses I'm pulling from do. Um, I would be far more general with some of this stuff, but this is one of the longest synopses <laughs> for, I think these six episodes we're talking about. Um, yeah, it's definitely the longest. So here we go. Uh, the largest live fire exercise ever conducted by the Japanese self-defense force takes place in advance of the prime minister's planned announcement of the repealing of the refugee special action policy. As part of this exercise, a group of soldiers with the ground self-defense force have staged a 5.30 a.m. practice raid against a building where a simulated refugee terrorist group is alleged to be keeping a think tank. So it's basically just like a you know, as it mentioned, but I want to be clear, this is like all just a live fire exercise. Um, a Jigabachi assault helicopter is dispatched to destroy the tank, but after firing an anti-tank missile into the target, the pilot of the helicopter suffers a massive heart attack and the Jigabachi begins to spin out of control. The onboard artificial intelligence gets the helicopter back under control, and the military officers running the drill decide to abort it out of a concern for the safety of their troops. However, the AI aboard the Jigabachi refuses to acknowledge the order to return to its parent JMSDF aircraft carrier. Acting on the assumption that the chopper is under attack, the AI overrides the flight controls of other armed Jigabachi aircraft 
um, an air tanker from the carrier and several nearby military bases, ordering these units into a tight defensive formation in the heart of Nihama refugee residential district. So basically, like this one thinks that the pilot is still alive because there's like still some life signals, I think is basically what's happening. Um, or yeah, the cyber brain is still intact, even though he's yeah. like his body is dead. Yeah. Um, and so it goes into this like seeming um, order, like into its like own order basically um or like its own operations and as part of it basically like hacks or or overrides the controls of so the other like jigabachi are you think unmanned at the time as is the Mm -hmm. the air tanker so it's like a bunch of unmanned helicopters um that are circling around this refugee district one of them has a dead pilot in it but all the rest there's like nobody in it um Anyway, by 8.45 p.m. or a.m., the situation has escalated. So, you know, this is like, what, a little over three hours later. Um, the Jigabachis have openly engaged anyone in anything the AI has designated as a threat. And if the choppers do not leave the area soon, uh, they will not have enough fuel to make the return trip to their bases. Um, they've been, like, sipping from the, the air tanker, basically, but are still going to run out of fuel. Um and Section 9 and the Ground Self-Defense Force are planning a standby, or are placed on standby um, in anticipation of being ordered in to resolve the conflict when Aramaki is unexpectedly approached by Kazundo Goda. Um, or actually, I, I forgot to switch it around in this, but it would be uh, Goda Kazundo, Goda of the family name. Um Who is head of the Cabinet Intelligence Service, CIS sis our evil sis um who explains that the probable reason for the uh helicopter ai's refusal to comply with the stand down order is that the ai is still receiving transmissions from the dead pilot cyber brain acting on this assumption Goda transfers control of the situation to section nine and outlines uh, outlines a plan that calls for bato and major kuzanagi to take a handful of tachikoma tanks and lure the jigabachi out to a secluded area of the refugee district allowing Saito to snipe the deceased pilot's head, destroying his cyber brain. Uh, Wasting no time, Section 9 puts the plan into action, Um, but though they manage to recall the helicopters, the damage has been done. The incident overall has already served to strain relations between the refugees and the government, Um, and Section 9 begins to suspect that there is a conspiracy. Um, So basically, like, obviously, even though none of the the helicopters crashed into the refugee district, having a bunch of military helicopters circle around the refugee district in advance of this, um, <laughs> like planned announcement of the repeal of the refugee special action policy is still going to strain political relations between the government mm-hmm. and the refugees. Um, <laughs> that, I, that part is obvious, I think. Um, so yeah, I, yeah. I feel like you are going to have a lot here. Um, I don't know if you want to, talk about anything before i get into goda's name um because i can Um, i can like pull out some of the actual stuff happening with his name um i'm just gonna like kick off because we're on the subject Um, yeah there is uh there is a continued development of this main plot line around like 
you know, the refugee, like, special action policy um, and the government's, like, machinations around that. Um, There's stuff that we're given that's foregrounded and there's stuff happening in the background, too. Um, Some by implication. Um, I'm just going to, like, connect a couple of dots so we have them connected as we move forward. Um, we, We know from episode one that, like the current government is a reactionary conservative government that like came to power on like some like anti-refugee platform. Um, in episode two, we see Gina watching the news and the news like frames the, um, the news is reporting the attack on the Chinese embassy which we know is actually conducted by this, the individual 11 group. Um, the news is framing it as like a refugee, like in uh, a terrorist attack by refugees. Um, now, uh, and, and then, you know, we know that like shortly thereafter, we learned that this refugee special action policy is going to be repealed. Uh, so we know that's in the works. Um, and then now we we see here that the government just, you know, doing a live fire exercise, just standard, you know, um, standard standard practice for a military force. Except, oh, it's the largest one ever, uh, or the largest one in some time. And also, like, we're we're doing the exercise. The exercise is like attacking like the refugee district. Um, so you know. Just some dots there <laughs> uh, that are like happening. Um, I, I think you know it. I think from our discussion, and I think you know, people watching, like you know, paying attuned to like this refu- this the political stuff going on, probably are have already perceived this. Um, but I just want you know, I just want to like have have that handy um, that like these things are progressing in, in a certain direction. Yeah. Um, yeah, th- this is like a, this one in particular, I think even without knowing the dual thing, you see this episode and you're like, Oh, big plot is happening. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, especially like getting that individual 11 symbol introduced at the end, which, which didn't come up in the synopsis, but like, so we see some people swapping out medication in the pilot's, um, apartment with this like logo on it that we're going to see show up later on in the, the episodes we discuss. Um, and they're like, you know, some black suits basically. Um, and so even that's like even tying into this individual 11 stuff we're going to get into more. Mm. Um, so yeah, this, this is just like a big, like uh, a plot heavy. Here's the refugee conflict and what's happening with it. Um, I, I guess I do want to just say a little, like you have a fair amount here that I'll probably respond to as we, we go on, but I do want to do the thing here that I'm not sure everyone watching this will, will get, which is, the thing that happens with uh, Goda's name. So the way that you say his name is Goda Kazundo, but there's even like a, a pointed interaction when he first meets Aramaki and hands his business card over 
where Aramaki says Goda Hitori. Um, and so the this is a, a play on like they're the way that Japanese names are are written are like usually with um, kanji, and sometimes they're also using like archaic meanings for kanji and stuff. Like some there are some that mostly only appear in names, um, and they're like more common in in Chinese and stuff. Um, but um, and so there's like specific meanings that are tied to the kanji. Like you know, it it is a, a writing system where like the the symbol that you write is directly connected to a meaning. Um, but then there are different pronunciations of those symbols, um, in Japanese, especially where some of them are tied to Chinese pronunciations and some of them are like tied to Japanese. And there's been this like mixing that's occurred in Japan historically with the language, um, or like with languages that have resulted in these different pronunciations. And so the the goda part, the two symbols, the first one means like to meet or to join um, or like to go somewhere. I think you can also kind of use like especially if you're like going to meet someone. And then the the second kanji means like rice paddy, basically. Um, mm-hmm. This is just like a fairly common. Uh, it's, it's a kanji primitive. It's it's like a basic. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's a primitive. Um, and then. His uh, given name uh, would normally be read in Japanese as Hitori. And the the characters, so the the first one is literally just the character for the number one. And then the second one means like person or individual. And these are one of the names, like another name here is Ichi. Um, There are some names in Japan that are commonly given to the first child because it just literally means like first child, essentially. And Hitori is one of these. Like... It means one person. It kind of means first child, but also like the direct meaning here is like individual um, or potentially alone. Like if if you wrote this in like a sentence, it could also mean like someone who is alone, um, like a loner. Um, and so what's what's being figured here is that like the normal pronunciation, the standard pronunciation, the pronunciation that might be like, oh, one person among many would be this Hitori. Like, this is the common one. He has this one that is, like, unique, Kazundo, that's, like, very rare. Like, if you if you look up this pronunciation, it's mostly in the U.S. just tied to Ghost in the Shell because it's not a very common pronunciation. But pronouncing it Kazundo, you know, it's commented in the series, but also for Japanese viewers, this would be an unusual thing. And he talks about, like, oh, yeah, like, in, in some way, like, I, to some degree, identify with this having the name Neve, a name that's difficult for a lot of like Americans when they first encounter it, because it's just so Irish. There's almost a certain power in having a name where like I, I talk about when I did job interviews with Neve. Um, there's a certain like nice thing of the very beginning of the interview is they're like, Oh, Niam or whatever. And I'm like, it's actually pronounced Neve. And like that shifts the power dynamic in some way to like suddenly have <laughs> uh-huh. someone said your name wrong and now you have to like you're like correcting them and they have to fix it like it it gives you a little bit of a power dynamic edge and i think that's what's happening here is that like he likes that he has this name that is a name that could just mean like oh one person just like one person among many but he is like shifting it into this like individual who stands out among everyone who has this different pronunciation of the name and he can like shift the power. He can, he says, I like that. I have this name to Aramaki. Basically. Um, he likes having a name where 
people see it and say the wrong thing and then he corrects them and it is a name that they're not going to forget now because wow there's that one time i met that guy who you know normally you would say hitori but it's kazundo that's how you say his name um it's like distinctive um this is also a thing that i forget if it comes up in this episode it will definitely come up around goda he has um i, I don't think that it goes into detail in this episode necessarily but he has a, a facial deformity where it's like his, his um skin is like it's almost, almost like a burn up. yeah it's like it's like this burn and like it's referred to later like uh, another character um in episode i forget if it's five or six um i think it's episode six it's the the like toga heavy one or togasa heavy one um but uh it's described as like almost like if you you pulled like all of the skin on the head sort of up um so that like his like face on one side is like kind of pulled up into a smile um and like his you know i there's, there's like a facial disfiguring that's happening here um mm-hmm. or you know something that that would again in a way like this series is touching on like things around disability um and i forget if it comes up in this episode or not um but like throughout the series he will also talk about liking having a distinctive face um so and we'll get into that more as it goes on but um so there's this certain amount to which like he's specifically being figured as someone who wants to and like standing out as like a distinctive unique individual um that i think is just a uh, a thing to keep in mind around goda and the themes that are happening around like that, that were also happening in standalone complex around like collective things and then individualism. Um, he is someone who is like very intensely individualistic, at least at this point is being figured that way. Um, and then like views himself as like potentially even superior to others or like distinct and standing out from the commoner. Um, right. Like I think yeah, all of that is that's... already in here. That's a really good point. The one thing that I would add, and it occurred to me like as you were going through, um, I think that the um, kanji, the rice patty, like primitive kanji, also often has like the dint of like mind or brain. Yeah. In in like uh, in in like the kanji system or in like general usage. Um, so even more to your point. Of like you know, like somehow like his mind, it like there's like a, an aspect of like the sense of the mind is also like implicated into like all the stuff that you're talking about, which I think is a really like yeah, um, pro- probably I don't know yet, but probably very important like reading for this you, character you could probably um, already look at him as a dude who thinks that uh he is very intellectual and is has superior intellect to those around him um yes. i think <laughs> i think he already embodies that vibe <laughs> yeah for sure for sure um so um yeah and then there's also the aspect of like you know um his facial deformity it affects like you know, specifically one side of his face. Um, so you have the aspect of like, you know, yeah, you like have... two faces. Yeah. Right. Like, so there's, there's also this kind of, um, 
you know, th- there's this kind of implication of like, you know, deceit or, uh, you know, a hi- hidden, like, like two selves, like a hidden self, um, or, you know, however you want to interpret that. Um, but there's also that aspect of like his character that I think we get right away is like the way his, his facial deformity is, it's like very cleanly, like, like, you know, half and half, like vertically splitting his face. Um, yeah. So I guess we'll, you know, we'll see where, where that goes. Um, the, uh, I guess the, there's only a couple other things that are like really stand out in this episode for me. Um, First one is like the continuation of this theme of like the dangers of uh, humans integrating with technology, um, the possibilities that creates for like invasion or like contamination uh, somehow in like unprecedented ways. Um, so like you know what happens in this episode is. Um, the like pilot the human pilot is essentially turned into a puppet like the body is dead but the cyber green is alive trapped inside um this helicopter um, which is under the control of an ai um and the ai you know uses the pilot cyber green um you know as part of like a uh a routine you know an automatic routine we're told um but nonetheless, what what happens is, you know, the AI hijacks this, like, pilot cyber brain in order to, like, take control of, you know, the helicopter and, like, all of this other, um, you know, military, like, hardware. Um, yeah. And I think there's this, you know, part of what's happening is this reversal of, like, you know humans can try to ensure uh like security through dominance over ais by programming them to need us like for example you know the ai needs this pilot cyber brain to function um or needs this interface um but that does not like protect us um from domination uh because like who's to say that they can't just like you know that this dynamic can't just be reversed even if we they're programmed to need us uh who's to say they can't you know um take dominance in this dynamic and then just puppet us and use us um the way that we use them um because of course like at, in this world we need them as well yeah um, so you know the danger of this dynamic being reversed and what that looks like for in this instance is a human like being turned into essentially like a puppet. Um, and you know, um, that being disturbing. (laughs) Um, and then we also get, yeah, this like also gets sort of figured in. I I don't know if this is where you're immediately going, but like we get the return of the, uh, slightly woke Tachikomas where they're like, I wonder if the Jigabachi helicopters are on strike. Um, you know, the, like military pilots don't make that much money and like, 
you know, are the working conditions that horrible? Like they must be on strike. That's clearly what's happening. This is a this is a worker strike. They formed a union. Um, remember that time that we tried to form a union and uh, the and then major, we got shut down. Yeah, the major <laughs> shut us down. Uh, good on those Jigabachis. They formed that union <laughs> for sure. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, that's exactly where I was going. Yeah. Like it's. It, it is like it is kind of like as a joke because it's the Tachikomas. Yeah. Um, but it drives the point home because like so much of again like standalone complex involved the <laughs> the Tachikomas doing some labor organizing as they arrive at uh, greater levels of like sapiens. <laughs> For sure. And like again, we were raising the like the Tachikomas then, like, with all this context, are now like raising this possibility of AIs like rising up. Um, or they're perceiving that possibility and it's like presented to the viewer, um, to like color, I think are like to color our reading of, you know, this core dynamic with the helicopter and the pilot, um, that's happening. You know, we're given this, (laughs) this commentary from the Tachikomas being like, Hey, like, you know, maybe think about this in that way. (laughs) Um, as like, this is a, you know, a potential, uh, thing that you know could happen yeah and once again of course section nine kind of is just like eh. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah right exactly um and silly tachigomas uh, and their thoughts of communism yeah don't make us mind wipe you again yeah um but we're just gonna yeah ignore this until like it becomes <laughs> like really don't big start problem. talking about god again please <laughs> <laughs> please i, like I really like this. having you around yeah um yeah i I mean i i am glad that the tachikomas are back even if it's kind of like what yeah just the the reversal of we will all of the like yeah yeah we will get to the episode that i wish just came way earlier in the series to like address stuff with tachikomas in a way that um i still would feel kind of weird about the reversal but they are going to like do some stuff that addresses what happened to the Tachikomas. And I just wish that they did it sooner. Um, okay. Cause yeah, it's they, not in yeah. these six episodes. Um, okay. and it, it's yeah. fun, but it also, I understand why they put it f- in terms of pacing for like stuff that happens later on, why they put it where they did. Um, I just wish that they'd like develop that stuff earlier or like, it would be fun if there was like a couple episodes before they return to where we get a little bit of like, man, there's just no Tachikomas for like two episodes. That would also be nice. Because they didn't really figure into like ones up until this point. Um, this is yeah, me just, just talking about how you. much I love Tachikomas and <laughs> I just want them to do right by them. They're my precious babies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I think for now you can just be glad they're back. Yeah. Um, but uh so yeah, and then uh, you know, here we have this theme that I talked about for the last episode. Um the the crisis uh like one of the you know, part of the central drama being here like the crisis is now not a progressive dislocation from government and then, you know, being uh in conflict um but rather uh being absorbed into the government. Yeah. Um is like this big threat. Yeah. Um, we'll have plenty of more opportunity to talk about that. So I like, it's definitely being figured here. And it's also, I think being tied with Goda in a way that it is worth like tracking as we continue. 
Okay, good. <laughs> um, so I'm not. It's not a complete 08th MS team where I'm just no. am totally off the off the off uh, off track. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the last thing that stood out to me in this episode was like the I think it's Togusa. I can't remember who says it um, at the very end. They're like, oh yeah, this seems like a conspiracy. Um, it might be some massive crime on a scale that we can't see. Um, and this is, uh, I think it's an intriguing moment because so we're so often, uh, see section nine as these like demigods. Um, and we see them, you know, in situations where they're like, you know, completely in control, omnipotent, um, and, you know, in episode two, we got them, like, you know, looking down at little, like, poor little Gino and saying, like, oh, yeah, this guy is completely powerless. He has no idea what's going on. Um, unlike us, who, you know, who are basically omnipotent. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but then we have a step back uh, here where it's like, oh, now Section 9 is relativized, where, like the the subject the possibility of like them being pawns in something that is like you know something uh machinations of a scale that is beyond their awareness um is explicitly introduced um so you know tying into the the previous point um maybe maybe this will uh be significant later on yeah um I feel good about moving on from this episode, especially in that I think we will sometimes refer back to this episode as we continue on with the series. Um, so I'm also fine with that. But okay, like, there, there's a lot here, but also this is the episode that's the most like, oh, they are setting up stuff that's going to be overarching for the series um, in a way where it's like, it's good to say like, they've already figured this stuff. They're tying it together as like part of this main plot. Now, you know, we already saw it in the first three episodes and it's going to keep happening. <laughs> um, yeah. this is, this is going to be like episode four is going to be where we live for a lot of the series. Honestly. <laughs> um, yeah. Along with episode um, five, um, where <laughs> I'll let you do the synopsis, but we do get major Kusanagi, uh, saying the damn line. Uh, she's like, this seems like another, standalone complex um or i think in the japanese she just goes standalone complex <laughs> oh that's um, great yeah it's fantastic <laughs> um okay episode five um title uh first it's it's an individual um episode and first title uh those who have the motive uh english title inductance <laughs> um in this episode uh we open with uh, Prime Minister Kayabuki has formally renounced uh, the refugee special action policy, um, which has uh, drawn criticism from refugees all over Japan. Uh, while on a tour of Dejima Island, a major center for the refugee population, uh, the Prime Minister receives an assassin- uh, assassination threat, uh, and Aramaki is summoned to Fukuoka to uh, offer his insight as to, you know, how to deal with it. Um, the cabinet wants Section 9 to protect the Prime Minister, a role the team reluctantly agrees to. Hmm. Um, 
Meanwhile, Ishikawa and Togusa uncover interesting information on the ideology of the individual 11 terrorist group. Uh, it seems the organization has ties to the May 15th incident, uh, which we hopefully they we learn what that is in this episode too. Yeah. Um, in which a group of army officers assassinate a former prime minister uh, and then gain support from the general population for their uh, undying conviction and their beliefs. Um, I'll also add that they, um, it's, it's pretty strongly figured as like a fascist, like yeah. coup d'etat basically. Yeah. Um, and, and also like the public being moved by like them during the, the trial and having support for them and like the, the pouring of letters being like, you know, be lenient or whatever, like let these boys go or whatever. Um, beyond just like them doing this, like coup d'etat against the, the like democratic government. Um, and this being viewed as this like weakening of democracy and, and law in Japan, um, is also, it's not just like the thing that they did, but the, the way that the public responded to it, that is what's talked about so much as like this rise of Japanese militarism and fascism. Um, because it's one thing yeah. for like a small group of people to do this, and then them to be punished severely, and like s- the public to to be turned against them. Um, it's right. another thing for this like public support for what they did. Um, yeah, so I'm sure that won't come up at all anymore after this. Um, yeah, <laughs> so we, you know, that we'll just leave that behind for now. Um, <laughs> uh, elsewhere. Um, the prime minister arrives at a Buddhist temple to meditate, um, still under, you know, protection of section nine, um, and, uh, is unexpectedly in the temple confronted by an assassin. Um, thanks to a swift response from the major and Bato, uh, Kaibuki is spared from what appears to be a certain death, um, but in the uh, in the ensuing chaos, the assassin manages to elude Section Nine, um, and there are questions I think from the major. Um, well, one question: <laughs> um, if you know what exactly the assassin's uh, intentions were, yeah, and if he he was even intending to succeed or not mm-hmm. um, in his attempt. Um, Without giving away too much, the the character here who is the assassin is going to recur as a, a character. I don't want to give more about... It's not surprising. ...who he is or anything, <laughs> but yeah, he, he is introduced. There's stuff, like, around him introducing him, and then he doesn't, like, get a resolution in this episode. So I, I don't think I'm, like, spoiling things to say, like, this distinctively designed character who shows up in this episode um, and is left with a lot of questions around him is going to continue to return. <laughs> wow. Um, okay. Got it. I... I'm sure you you have a fair amount of stuff here. One thing, I guess I'm going to leave this up to you. When do you want me to talk about no play? Because I I think there's some interesting stuff happening here, but if you want to talk about other stuff and and throw to me at a point, I'm fine with that. Um, Um, Yeah, I'll... Let me just run through, like, really quick. um, A a couple things. Okay. Um, 
stuff around the May 15th incident. Um, yeah. Continued development of a lot of the political like stuff we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> we, have, um, we have talked... I joked earlier about a historical event that might be referenced later on around like a turning away from democratic rule and towards fascism. Um, here we go. Yeah. This is the event. Yeah. Here we go. So yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to throw a few things out there and then, you know, I'm just going to throw them out and, and not really, you know, assume that's like P- people have now gotten what we're talking about. Right. Uh, it's right. happening so, again and it's happening explicitly. Uh, right. So the assassin is like part of the individual 11 or associated with the individual 11 somehow. He, the way that we're introduced to him, he's presented as obsessed with like the samurai tradition, warrior culture. Um, like, there's some like mask, you know, masculinity tying into this as well. Um, the May 15th incident, um, which the individual 11 is like ideologically organized around, um, is representative of this kind of, um, emergence of like fascism, uh, cult, uh, and the various, you know, constitutive elements of fascism, uh, the cult of military, uh, and or like the cult of the warrior warrior culture uh traditionalism um you know heroic like uh archetypes uh like masculine like heroism um so all of this is like coming up um there's a interesting dynamic happening with the politics where we know that Kayabuki is a cons- is is the prime minister of a conservative regime, reactionary, uh, that's been named as reactionary, and is a refugee, uh, sorry, anti-refugee. Um, but we also know the individual 11 are anti-refugee, at least so far, um, and appear to be like even more of a hardline fascist, like right-wing faction. Um, so, you know, and, and the way this episode presents it, like, uh, they're somehow, you know, they're going to assassinate Kaibuki, uh, or they seem to intend to, um, so something is going on here, um, tied into this, it's remarked, uh, explicitly for the first time, um, in this episode that Kaibuki is, uh, female, um, I mean, we know this, we've known from episode one, but she's identified as Japan's first female prime minister. Um, so, you know, stuff around like gender, her gender and her role, um, uh, comes more into play. Um, there is a exchange that she has with the major about like, you know, undue concern for women is what leads to contempt for them when the major uh or section nine is trying to like you know protect her um and then uh you know she goes to like the buddhist temple she's almost assassinated in the temple of course the temple is like a site of contestation for tradition it's a symbol uh you know of like this traditionalism 
um, to the extent that Section 9, like, can't go in, it's kind of becomes a, like, uh, a problem that Section 9 can't go in because she's almost killed. Um, but it's all around the fact that this is a sacred space. Um, you know, so this woman entering into this, like, sacred space, almost being killed by this fascist assassin in there, um, you know, all of, all of that is happening. <laughs> um, like, and, you know, there, like, obviously there's a lot of question marks still remaining. Yeah. Like, um, like one thing I, I f- want to just to immediately say is, um, we don't, I don't know how much we actually know the, the politics of the assassin yet. Um, right. and, and I say this we as know well, a little be- bit because like, know in some ways, about- yeah, like she is almost like she is being figured as a conservative turn. This person who is going to assassinate. Um, yes. And so, and then like, we know that the individual 11 is tied to this May 15th incident. But then a thing that is also specifically mentioned is how, um, so it's based off of this, uh, 11th episode or this, um, 11th essay in a series, um, published by this, I think fictional like theorist, Patrick Sylvester. I haven't looked to see if I can find, but I'm pretty sure this is, um, yeah, I think he's in the realm of pure fiction. Um, And so there were, uh, you know, 10 essays that are published and can easily be found. And then there's this like rumored 11th essay called the individual 11. Um, and up till this point, like, you know, section nine is looking for it and can't find a published copy. There's no known published copy. Um, we'll get into like more plot around trying to find this essay as the, the story goes on. I don't think that's like also a big spoiler here. Um, but a thing that is talked about, they get like some description of the essay and that this 11th essay, the individual 11 is about how actually it like the May 15th incident was not a true revolution. Um, and there's like some desire for like finding an actual revolutionary potential. Um, and it's unclear at this point, why why is that like the may 15th was not an actual revolution and is it because it was actually this like fascistic thing or not is also a question here so um like i think the politics of the assassin as well as like this individual 11 thing um is um confused at this point yeah yeah because when we first see it introduced it's kind of people who are like protesting the refugees right um, right, exactly. Their demand is to repeal the Refugee Special Action yeah. you know, Act, like in um, episode one. Yeah, but then, like, the way that stuff, like, it showing up tied to the Jigabachi stuff is this weird escalation of tensions where it's more confused there, or, like, more difficult to understand there, so... Or, like, um, an accelerationism or something. Yeah. Um... um but I agree, it's it's still in question, but, like, all of these things are, like, but now, yeah. like, in the mix. The, like, I guess I can get into some of the no stuff, because this assassin is figured, like, tied to these things of tradition. Um, which include the samurai, but also a thing that comes up here and that will... I don't know how much... This is a thing that I think can be a little bit difficult to, to understand and read in this episode. But there are moments where we see where it seems like the assassin is talking to 
the major, but does not move his mouth. Um, and so this this will be confirmed more, but I don't know if you you notice this that his mouth does not move. He he cannot move his mouth when he talks. Um, sound comes out, but he cannot actually move his mouth. Uh, his 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 face is mask like; it is unchanging. Um, it always looks the same throughout this um, throughout this episode, or it changes in subtle ways in the ways that no masks change. Um, so there there's a tying both with like him having this like being tied to samurai, having this like very statuesque, unmoving, um, also kind of pale face in the way that no masks mm-hmm. would be pale. And then one of our first big introductions to him, him being in this Buddhist temple, um, which I think is especially tying to a, a form of no uh, that's called Ashura no, uh, which is usually like a, a ghost of a samurai is um, in the lead and it is going to uh, like to the Buddhist afterlife basically and like seeking atonement. Um, and, you know, within the structure. So, so no also has this like Joe Hawk structure typically, or this is the way that like theorists talk about it where, and we can maybe talk as the series goes on. Do we think that also, cause I, I think that like what I find, a thing I find interesting with second gig is I think sometimes it actually is interested in like, no. And the, we'll talk about this more as the series goes on. I'm like, I'm going to continue to bring up no play. So that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm bringing it in here, but sure. Yeah. Um, Joe is specifically like the, the Joe part. So it, it's sort of a five act structure. And the first act is Joe, uh, acts two through four are ha. And then the final act is Q. Um, and Joe is supposed to be like slow. It's kind of starting to like maybe introduce a little bit of stuff, but a lot of it's supposed to make you feel comfortable with, ah, uh, like here's the sca- status quo, right. That's going to be disrupted. Um, and then ha is so like Joe specifically means, um, I'm trying to find like the, the general, um, translations that i that i will sometimes pull here um but um like you know joe is this like beginning like it's like a very simple like this is the start of things this is kind of the status quo this is this is what there is ha means breaking um and so it's a lot of like this is where like the most conflict will happen this is where a lot of battles happen um is in the like three acts that are ha and then q um is is you know, this stuff is difficult to translate, but is often um, translated as something like rapid or urgent. And it's like this, like very sudden ending. Um, often the the final act is like fairly brief um, compared to some of the other acts. And it is like this rapid um, climax of like almost like a car crash kind of cl- climax of like everything is building and building. And then suddenly like everything climaxes and then like we get this like new state of things. Um, Mm -hmm. so, so some of that is like stuff that we can talk about here. Um, but I think that might be more interesting as we like get into the overall, overall arc of this, um, season. Um, but, but the other thing that I think is coming in here is if we are looking at this, we're like, okay, he has this face that is like a no mask and, and famously, so the, the main character, um, which is called the Shite in no is often the one that like will always wear a mask. Some of the other roles may wear masks, but not always. But the the Shite always wears a mask uh, mask in no play. And um, 
it is this like very detailed, intricate carving whereby shifting often, like by looking down or up slightly, um, the light from above will hit the face in such a way to transform and like give it a sense of different emotions um you can find like images of these if you like look up no masks and look at like gifs even you can sometimes find like the way that like the shifting of the mask will will give you a different sense of an emotion or um feeling even though it is like cut um i I think it's like wood that they like panel with like crushed shells of something and then like paint um but anyway so he, he kind of has this face where um, it is very detailed and it is detailed in a way where like sometimes you get this different expressive quality, even though he's not actually like moving his lips ever. He's not like really moving his face. Um, we never see him talk in a way where he's opening his mouth and they're animating his mouth moving in this episode. And that's going to continue to be true. Um, and so having him show up being tied to samurai appearing in a a Buddhist temple is placing him in the role that would be the Shite, the lead for like an Ashura. No, like he is the one who would like come to the temple to, to plead for atonement from like the priest. And then there would be like flashbacks to his life when the, the samurai was alive as part of like the, the play culminating in like the, the final battle where he died. And, you know, there's like this talk about, the the fate of his soul or whatever um Mm -hmm. but i think it's also important to like mark here that like if this if we're taking this reading and i think that there's enough detail here that i feel confident saying like this seems to be something they're playing with in this episode yeah (laughs) major (laughs) kusanagi appears as the foil as the walkie not as the lead character and so there's also this thing that's happening and is like being figured in this moment of like Major Kusanagi does not know what he's doing, does not, like, understand his ideology, has thoughts about, maybe he did not intend to kill you, right? But is the foil to him and not the reverse. That, like, in this episode, they are figuring her in some ways as being not the main character, him as being the main character, and her as being someone who is a foil to him. Um, And I think that's interesting and will be interesting to think about as the series continues. Um... So that's a good point. Yeah. Um, especially with the way the episode is framed, just to further support that. Um, and and a, some a of this of is like is framed. <laughs> stuff will get confirmed about his face, not moving. And I, th- I can't remember, but I think they even specifically tie it to no masks. So like I'm bringing some of the stuff in early, but I think it's already in here and it's, it's interesting to talk about it as someone who's seen the whole series to be like, this is really heavily pointing towards conventions of no play um yeah so yeah um and i I think the episode is is framing him as the main character in like you know i don't know if it opens on him but you know there are like scenes of him like in his apartment you know giving like inter like having internal monologue um, yeah. and like driving the like plot of the of the like episode um well, you know whereas like the major in section nine are like much more of a secondary not really like driving the plot yeah um so he almost like within this episode like takes on that um that main character like function uh to you know uh in a way that's like palpable yeah um 
which I think also like we'll, we'll talk about how this develops further, but I think is also tying into the stuff that we were talking about previously as well of like section nine moving into this position of relative powerlessness. Um, mm-hmm. And part of that being to the government, but also being in relation to like this terrorist action, right? Um, that they, they don't really know what's going on with Gota or this assassin yet. Um, yeah. And they can't really like, they, they battle him and they like, he just like jumps like 10 miles. Yeah. And they're like, Oh, well, like we actually have no way of chasing that guy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he somehow like has like his cybernetic capabilities are like beyond what we have, like what we can do right now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, both of these episodes in a way that I think are also tying to episode one where they triumph with a little bit more difficulty seemingly over the government and with perhaps more questions and very handily take care of the terrorists. Um, we get mm, perhaps we're being used by the government in the previous episode. And then, well, shit, we just, we can't even chase that guy. He's just gone. <laughs> he did what he wanted to do. Um, like I've, I've, ne- yeah, I've never seen that before. Yeah. Like I've never seen someone do that. Yeah. <laughs> there's a, there's almost a certain element of major Kusanagi being like, look, he could jump 10 miles. Um, <laughs> if he wanted to kill you, I think he could have taken me. Um, I think yeah. he didn't want to. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, I don't know if you have additional thoughts on this episode, but um, this is a strong Uh, episode to me. This is a good introduction of this character, I think. Um, And I I like how this has stuff that immediately feels like it's tying into themes, but also figures some of the stuff that I think will be interesting going on. Um, It's just a very, like, good episode for an episode that's going to be like, oh, here's overarching plot. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm really enjoying it so far. Yeah. Um, after six episodes, uh, you know, best six episodes of the show. No, not necessarily the. <laughs> there are other good episodes to come, but um, we, I I will have my ones where I will gripe. Um, there's one that I even really enjoy as an episode. I just hate what it means within the series as a whole. <laughs> um, okay, so fair enough. I think that might um, be next next seven episodes that we talk about but (laughs) okay good good i'm looking forward to it um i i always like it's it's just an added dimension of like enjoyment for me when i have those little like clues ahead of time where i'm just like (laughs) hmm like which one of these episodes is the one that neve hates yeah (laughs) um and then i like you know it's kind of like a little a little game for me as i'm watching through I, um, I just want to say here, the next series that we're doing after all of this Ghost in the Shell nonsense is Bacano. Um, and I'm just excited to finally do one where I've only seen the first two episodes of Bacano. I'm excited for you and JC to know how this this show plays out and for me to just be in the dark. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. All I'll say to that is don't count too much for my recollection of Bacano. You will still know more than me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, um, because, uh, yeah, the conditions under which I watch Bakino, um, it's going to be interesting for me to see, to try and remember, like, to, to watch it with that, 
you know, being my last time, like my first and only time watching it. Um, it anyway, we'll we'll get there. Yeah. Um. But uh, are are you ready for episode six? Um. Yeah. Let's do episode six. Um. Oh, I do the synopsis for this one. <laughs> mm. Uh, episode Indeed. six. This is another individual episode. Um, Japanese title: Latent Heat Source. English title: Excavation. <laughs> um, it's just great how it's all in caps. Um, yeah, they just those those Americans. They just you know, yeah, you really need to hammer it into their head with yeah. the all caps. <laughs> um, the prime suspect behind an attempt to blackmail the Minister of Energy has turned up dead in Nihama City, ostensibly the victim of a tragic accident. However, a more thorough investigation uh, examination of the body turns up evidence of homicide. Um, yeah, a, a, tra- a tragic accidental bludgeoning to the back of the head. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, there's like other stuff that makes it look like he was like in a crash or something. And then they find, sure, like, yeah. oh, he was bludgeoned in the back of the head. Um, anyway, uh, Togusa follows up on the death of the suspect and obtains, quote-unquote, photographic evidence, uh, which the man had intended to use against the Ministry of Energy. However, the film uh, the pictures were taken with has been exposed to light and subsequently turned completely black. With most members of Section 9 still assigned to guard the Prime Minister, Togasa is given a tachikoma and sent to the Shinjuku Refugee District of New Tokyo to um, investigate the photo lead. After an accidental encounter with the dead man's fiancée, Asagi Yuriko, the two of them decide to investigate the death together. Uh, They learn that the man, named Kontan, um, had accepted a mysterious job in exchange for the promise of a new cyber body and had been put to work descaling the walls of a subterranean structure in the Uchikon 7 district, uh, which was submerged in the last war. Although the gr- ground self-defense army is now guarding the primary entrance to the site, Tokusa and Asagi managed to enter the facility through an alternative uh, alternate unguarded entrance with the help of one of Kontan's former co-workers. Um, after descending into the heart of the building, Togusa discovers that the building was actually an old nuclear power plant, and the photographic evidence was not a photo, but a radiation badge. So basically the um, radiation would, would turn the the like developed film black still, um, I think is how that works. Um, yeah, and the, the workers like... I mean, there's there's all this plot about the workers would wear it to know if they were like in danger because like if yeah. they're being irradiated or not. Because the thing that's like brought up here as well is that like, um, and th- this will further develop, but like there was this nuclear war. Apparently, there's a a lot of nuclear re- radiation in multiple areas of the world, not just Japan. Um, and there's like ways of cleaning up the radiation, basically. And uh, a benefit to having a, a fully cyberized body is that, like, you won't get cancer from nuclear radiation, basically. Um, and there's, like, some concern even just being there of, like, the Tachikoma being like, hey, Toga, so do you want to ride around inside of me? Are you worried about the, like, potential radiation here? Um, and so, yeah, like, this stuff is is being figured here. And then what's happening with the workers is that they're being promised new cyber bodies, but it's also kind of impossible to tell if you got one or not. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is the thing where 
the the like coworker, the former coworker of Kontan that they're talking to is like, yeah, I was down there and you know, it was like your your mouth and nose would just be filled with black while you're doing this descrubbing and then one of the guys I was working with was like, Well just turn off your like taste and smell sensors. Um and he was just like, Oh well like I can't do that like Basically, like, they fudged the numbers on how cyberized I was a little bit. Yeah. Um, and the guy was just like, God, take this. If it turns black, like, like, get the yeah. fuck out of here. Like, like, get the hell out of here. Yeah. yeah. Get the hell out of here. And he was like, I'm not going to do that. I need this job. And he's like, okay, take this, take this, like, little bit of film. And if it turns black, then, like, for sure, get the fuck out of here. Like, <laughs> um, yeah. I'm going to give you, like, something to try and protect yourself of, like, if this turns black, it's, it's bad. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's like i think clearer context than this synopsis around some of that stuff mm-hmm. but anyway um someone has authorized the excavation of this pre-war relic um but their identity remains unknown hmm i wonder what this will end up being tied to i wonder if there's any overarching plots that could somehow tie into this stuff who knows um they flee the yeah, scene it's definitely just gonna be yeah it's just gonna be left like unresolved. it's just, it's just a one-off episode this is it's a individual <laughs> episode so i'm sure it's not gonna be related to any overarching plot stuff um they flee the scene and manage to contact section nine where a formal investigation in the facility is started um and then toga says just like well we discovered some potentially shady government stuff anyway woman who was definitely seen by guards while we were down there um just call me if anything happens um Togusa just being an absolute idiot here. Uh, so then when he yeah. tries to contact her, discovers she has disappeared. We see like her phone just laying on the, the um, train set. She just immediately gets taken. Yeah. Just they've like, they've like, like been the train tailed. doors closed and she's taken. Yeah. Like what the yeah, fuck are you doing? Togusa? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like if five minutes after he like tells her like, Oh, call me. Yeah. It. Yeah. Yeah. Nice one. Nice one. Togusa. Um, <laughs> I, I have listened to, so the great Gundam project, um, I forget when they started this, but they started doing like, here's the, the Gundam show, but then we also are watching two episodes of another anime. Um, I actually haven't listened to the episodes that they did on standalone complex, but I have listened to the ones that included second gig. Um, and, uh, definitely in the second gig, at least a running thing on great Gundam project is that Toka is bad at his job. <laughs> Um, (laughs) Uh, um, (laughs) which this is this is this is a key piece of evidence in favor of togus is bad at his fucking job (laughs) yeah Um, and and second gig definitely yeah um in standalone complex i think he's a little he's a little more competent but still like yeah yeah he's Um, a little fresh to the team he makes a, a few rookie mistakes but like there's a lot of potential in him in standalone complex here he's like we haven't talked about this but he's got these moments where he's like oh you know these new recruits like i don't know if anyone's i don't know if everyone's like cut out for this work and the rest of section nine's like you're still like the newbie of all of us like what are you talking about (laughs) um yeah and also making bad mistakes yeah you you thought that we were like dead or in prison for like a a month and decided to like try to assassinate a prime minister like what are you doing (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah yeah i forgot about that yeah (laughs) um Um, so yeah in addition to togusa being bad at his job 
Um, I have like one major point that yeah. I want to touch on here. Um, but if, is there anything you want to go into first? Um, I I think one thing that I I just want to bring up. Um, like the, I think you'll have stuff of like, what are they doing in this episode? One thing that I think is interesting here is that this is the most like vision of cyberpunk that is like a city in complete decay that this show has ever given us i think like there are like literal like buildings that are like about to topple over like giant skyscrapers um with just like broken glass everywhere um there's just like and it's like weird overgrowth sunken city yeah um and this is the thing that we talked about with, with standalone complex which is how much of in that series we do conceive of it as this like cyberpunk dystopia, but that dystopia is not figured in the landscape in the same way that is happening here. Um, It is all the like shiny veneer of the dystopia that we live in as well, where like there's the shiny downtown buildings and here we're like getting like, it's almost like standalone complex just continued to take place in like the shiny downtown. And finally we're going to like the South side or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, Like we're finally seeing like, yes, there are these areas of like complete like um, neglect uh, of people and like um, the infrastructure that could support those people. Um, But we we never saw even as we went in standalone complex into like, you know, there's that part where there was the the terrorist group that had the um, woman that they took into custody and then she like. Oh, like the oil became rig a leader, whatever. yeah. Like in the oil rig, like there was a little bit of a vibe of like that, like more, like this is not like a wealthy area, but it still was not like this level of just like pure dystopian decay. Um, yeah. So that's actually a really good point, um, and I think it it makes me think about, um, like in this episode, we like second gig one of the central things that it's doing that is not really done in standalone complex is it's really taking like, it's really focused on looking at like directly at exploitation, like the various like permutations of like this exploitation. Um, And like part of moving out of that city space is moving is, is the geographic like, spatial organization of like um you know of exploitation uh, of like socio-political exploitation so like i mean you made like the south side reference um but like this is something that you know we know happens uh like exploitation is like manifested geographically um through you know like various forms of like marginalization and deprivation and stuff um and here like you know the movement into like shinjuku which is also like you know a a refugee district now um but this destroyed like irradiated you know dystopian space um is just another a way that I think second gig is like drawing our attention to, yeah. you know, having us look directly at like the exploited. Um, and I think there's also a certain amount, like this being Shinjuku as well. 
I, I think is a, a key thing because they're also, they're doing some of the like cyberpunk dystopian future thing of like, Oh, like stuff, like things have changed and been destroyed to some degree because, you know, Shinjuku famous for uh, the Shinjuku crossing, which was of course invented by persona five. Um, and has now been <laughs> stolen by other games. Like the world ends with you. Um, but like, you know, Shinjuku crossing is like, kind of in the realm like Shinjuku is kind of in the realm of like Times Square I would say f- for Tokyo as this place of like mm-hmm. Shinjuku Crossing just has tons of people it's just this giant crossing um and there's like huge buildings where like you know concerts will happen and things like um it, it is this like lively downtown area um and obviously there are like multiple lively areas in Tokyo, but it is a key one. Um, it is like a, a, a key hub for a lot of people, people in Tokyo. Um, and so even though this is like what I think it's in new Tokyo, this is Shinjuku. So there's like also this implying of, of various things. Is that, is that correct? I think this is like the Shinjuku of new Tokyo. Um, but still uh, just like, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. But still just having this like, refugee district that is like in complete like disregard by powers that would like maintain the infrastructure that people need to like you know have like good livelihoods um yeah and everything like having that be shinjuku i think is also meant to be this jarring thing of like oh wow like look at how things have changed um even if this is not like the shinjuku that exists right now in decay um, it is still something that, like, when they built New Tokyo, they said, oh, we're going to call this Shinjuku. And then it's just, like, potentially because it got bombed or something. Like, I think that there's implications that there is a lot of radiation here, so something happened. Um, and perhaps, like, some of these buildings that we see, too, are, like, buildings that got, like, fucked up by a bomb or something and then just, like, have not really been rebuilt and they just put refugees here. Um, I think that's, like, a po- a possible implication here as well. Um, and, and calling it Shinjuku gives you that sense of, like, they probably wanted this when New Tokyo even was built to be, like, a, a, a big, like, oh, here's, like, a big downtown area and now it is this um, neglected, like largely segregated as well like moving out of this area seems to be a big thing for people yeah um yeah so like it's it's like a prescribed like area yes right like yeah that, that's gonna be the, the next point <laughs> um but uh there's also an aspect that like i'm remembering which is the existence of the radiation is like is itself suppressed right like there's um there's a comment from Aramaki like I just remembered it because I clicked over to the to the transcript to um look at something else and uh, like there's a comment from Aramaki where he's like oh no the radiation Togus is like is the radiation going to be a problem and Aramaki is like no there's no radiation after the Japanese miracle which like I, you know maybe that's a world building thing that we haven't gotten yet. Um, but yeah, part of like the, what is revealed in this episode is that contrary to like public belief that the radiation has all been like dissipated, 
um, there is in fact like residual radiation in these like spaces um, where like the refugees are, <laughs> um, you know, shunted into um, to like do this cleanup work. Um, so it, it's not only the case that like, you know, that this episode is about um, like geographic mar- marginalization of, of various people into like, you know, unsafe and like, uh, you know, deteriorated like areas. Um, but also that, that, that act is suppressed, right? Yeah. Like, does that make sense? Like the actual like machinations behind that, um, and that like marginalization itself is like suppressed to the public. Um, and we like, we get that here. The episode actually performs this like for us a- as the viewer, where we're taken into this space. We follow Togusa as he like investigates it. And like, as he digs down into like, uh, you know, as he explores the space, then it's revealed, like he discovers that, um, you know, there is radiation. Um, so there, that's a really interesting aspect of of this episode uh, yeah. as well. Um, the other thing is uh, bodies. So <laughs> yes, <laughs> and, and, um, and this, like, I think by having them together here, this like explicit tying of the stuff that we're talking about in terms of like locations and like segregated areas and stuff. And then how that's also being tied thematically in this episode to like the regulation of bodies, the, the way that bodies are um, like that having certain bodies can offer people different rights and the, the ways that people can be exploited trying to get like the body that they need in order to like, enter this form of society that, that is out of like outside of this regulated and um, segregated space. Yeah. I'm just going to read cause this, the section of the transcript is, is uh, really important. I think um, this is a soggy. So um, Kontan uh, or uh, Kotan, um, his fiance um, is talking to Togusa. Uh, and she says, um, you know, uh, Kontan gave this ring to me and he told me why. It was because he'd be able to leave refugee town soon. But when he attempted to get his ID, Kontan's prosthetic body got flagged during his inspections. It didn't meet the minimum performance requirements, so he couldn't leave. Um, so we get here, like, the refugees are... They, they literally need, like, in order to leave the refugee district, to gain the rights of mobility, to, like, leave this district, um, and to, like, you know, move around in society, they need, like, a body of a certain type. Um, and, like, the access to that body is, like, a form of exploitation, right? Like, in order to gain that, like they need, they are like subject uh, or subjected to like, 
you know, exploitation um, to, like, gain these rights. Um, And all of this is, like, you know, um, like, grounded in, like, the the body, the regulation and policing of bodies by the state. um, And then, like, you know, certain kinds of bodies becoming a barrier for, like, (laughs) rights and citizenship. Um, yeah, and then again, like, exploitation in exchange for, like, the body that you need to gain rights. Um, all, like, you know, tied back into the stuff we were just discussing. Yeah. Uh, it's also interesting to think about, because, you know, we saw episode two, where we can all, also almost imagine, like, okay, like, Quantan leaves this refugee district, and then what? Does he just become, like the position that Gino has like is, is his mobility upward going into Gino that we've already seen as like, Oh, this is also like an exploitative position to be in. Um, he is like more allowed to be like operating in, you know, this other part of society, but it is still just like moving in the city space. Yeah. But it is still just like taking these jobs because it's the only jobs that he can take as like this refugee. Right. Um, yeah. And and like we're seeing his struggles against the oppressive forces and it, his awareness of it, but also, you know, as we said, a key point of the episode, like inability to actually act against it and how that's then, you know, to like further extend this. That's also compared to Major Kusanagi, who has like this power. And then also we can like start figuring in here too. I think especially the the assassin, um, but also like maybe going uh, Goda as like these other people that are that are in this mix of like Goda like intentionally seemingly not having a cyberized body because he he has this face um, mm-hmm. that in the society you can easily imagine a man of his like power could just get a new like what you know, if he, if he had a fire or whatever caused this, like if he wanted to correct that, there are surely ways that he could. Um, I, I don't think like, I think this will come up more. I don't think it's really been mentioned yet. Again, we watched this like a week ago, but like there is, I think you can even read into, even if it hasn't been said uh, explicitly that he seems to be choosing this face because he's in a, a position where he could so easily choose things in the same way that like major Kusanagi can. Um, and so yeah. we're getting these, like we're also getting like major Kusanagi and then we're getting like Goda who seems to be uncyberized um, and valuing his like mind and intellect. And then we also get um, this assassin who seems to be very cyberized, you know, can do these like, intense jumps and has this unmoving face um faces are figuring in with both of these characters goda and the assassin um Mm -hmm. and you know but we don't have too much of a sense of like his ideology yet right we don't have a sense of like his his interiority to quite the same extent we do get a little bit in that episode but like it's still so vague and it's so tied up in like this like samurai warrior thing that almost seems to be about the body um or like the the ability of like the soldier, so yeah, um, for sure, yeah. So there's a lot of stuff in the mix here. Oh um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Just and, to like uh, fully extend that body stuff out into here's other places. <laughs> it's all in the sure. matrix. Um, 
but yeah, I think uh, like I think I'm satisfied with uh, you know the stuff we've brought out and set up here. Yeah. Um. Um. I don't think we can like. <laughs> I don't think we can tie it uh, tie it out just yet because we yeah. we need more uh, and to see how like this stuff develops. But the amount of stuff that is like set up in these first six episodes is wild yeah <laughs> um reflecting I, I back say, on it now after our after our like conversation is it's wild um we will get to episode seven next time um i thought a lot about whether or not to include episode seven here or um in the next grouping of episodes and i, I chose to include it in the next grouping for for two reasons one is that it's not it's not really a cliffhanger, but I, I think it makes some of the stuff that we're talking about more explicit in a way that, where it's clear that, like, they're going to just keep talking. They're going to keep, like, developing that more directly. And I just feel fine talking about it in terms of, like, what do they actually do with this? Um, mm. And also, I had some confidence that you would be able to pull out stuff that's, like, happening around Goda and that I would feel comfortable talking about a little bit of it um, without us having to see episode seven, which is going to, like, develop some of that stuff further. Um the other thing is that I just know that we can go very long for the first six episodes of a good <laughs> Um And so we can do seven episodes next time and, and maybe be shorter on some of them, but um, yeah. 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 We, now that we can just reference back to like the stuff that we've set up here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we love our first six you know, episodes all... of a ghost of the shell series. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm just, I'm pumped right now. Um, I like, the enjoyment of talking through the episodes sometimes exceeds the enjoyment of even watch of watching them. Yeah. Um, and that's definitely the case here where like, I enjoyed watching them, but like talking through them now, I'm like, Oh fuck. Yeah. Yeah. This after is, this conversation, this, these episodes were great. I'm like, maybe I'll get to the end of the second gig. And I was like, I don't, I don't know what I was on. That was great. Cause this is great. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm excited for what's to come, and I know what's happening. <laughs> so yeah, I I, I hope so. I um, hope, like that that would be that would be awesome. There's still just um, stuff that I know that I'm going to be disappointed in, but we'll get there. We'll get there. Sure. Um, some of it is also that I felt this most intensely with OAMS team. Um, of like you are pulling at stuff that I'm also excited about, but I. I no longer have the um, like the openness of not knowing where this is going and just being like, there's all these things that they're doing. And like, you know, the what, yeah, the, the hope and yeah. the like belief that they're going to be able to like pull some of this stuff out. And um, sometimes media just doesn't just doesn't wrap it up quite as much as you, you wish it would. Like, again, I like it with MS team. Um, I think that we painted a trajectory for 08th MS team in our first discussion episode that would have been a much better series than the 08th MS team <laughs> that actually exists. Um, and I think that's part of just watching media and talking about it and being excited about it. Um, and I can still be like, I like 08th MS team. It's doing some interesting things, even if like we are unsatisfied with how they develop some of the themes overall. Um, and I think it's the same with second gig. I like second gig a lot. Um, 
it's just compared to standalone complex i'm like more down on it and i i feel like i've now gotten a reputation of like i hate second gig um and this is not a persona 3 situation um i am like okay extremely sure. mad at Stefan persona 3 so <laughs> yeah if you if you were just like completely you know like yeah i don't know if it would be as fun if like i knew that you know that it just wasn't <laughs> that just there just wasn't like any space for like f- yeah you know for this show to like have you know to have a fun discussion about the show yeah um I'm just looking forward Whereas, to our like, final discussion episode, which we will not record for a while because. So the other weird thing about how we're recording this is that, like, we're gonna record other stuff in between this and the next time that we record seven through thirteen. But whatever, it is what it is. It's gonna be great. Yeah. No matter, it's, regardless of the timing, it's gonna be great. Um. So we just wrap this up now. Yeah, I think I'm really good to go. Okay, so next episode, we will be discussing episodes 7 through 13 of Ghost in the Shell SAC, second gig. Um, Gotta you, throw that exclamation point in there. Yeah, <laughs> I always have the exclamation point, but I don't always say the exclamation point. Um, if you have emails for us, please write in to ghostdiverspod at gmail.com, and we will address them on the Question Bucket episode, which... Um, who knows? This might be, again, a slightly more serious. I feel like often we get to the question bucket episodes and we're like, we don't really have much else to say about the series. Like, we got it out in our discussion. We're just going to goof around and have fun and, like, talk about... Yeah, we had 12 hours to, to get our... To, to build up our, you know, our discussion on this and explore this series. Yeah. Pretty so much. now we're just we going to talk about the fast food orders for characters in Ray Earth. Um, it's exactly. great. I, I yeah. love being able to do that because I feel like it comes out less often. Like I do it a little bit on the podcast, but part of my enjoyment of anime is just like, I like characters and it's fun. It's like fun to think about them. Um, and I feel like question buckets are a good space for that. So we enjoy yeah, fun questions about- like that. I love talking about how Hardee's is the the <laughs> the secret evil like nihilism yeah. that's like undergirding like the cheery <laughs> veneer of McDonald's. Um, the, also, White Hardee's Castle. is the shadow. Yeah, well, White Castle is just White Castle is its own like yeah. It, it's just the black hole of yeah. like White Castle is the the like, void of emptiness negativity. at the end of creation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hardee's is like the the raging undercurrent of violence, like the shadow self of like underneath McDonald's, like like shining face, yeah, um, and like cheeriness, um, yeah. Hardee's yeah. is like the distillation of every like violent impulse that is embedded in like in in the persona of McDonald's, yeah. And um, and White Castle is just pure nihilism and despair. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> it is it is the void of meaning and the emptiness of the soul. <laughs> um, so anyway, if you have fun questions about Ghost in the Shell, Second Gig, uh, or Solid State Society, we would love them. If you have serious questions, we would love them too. But um, 
yeah. If you want us to further explore why White Castle is representative of total annihilation, that too is uh, allowed for the question bucket. Yeah. So just right, right in with your questions. Um, Major Kusanagi definitely has nights where she just gets White Castle. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, after she brain hacks yeah. somebody. Yeah, it's not even a self-hate thing for her. She's just like, you know what? I deserve White Castle today. <laughs> brain, brain hacking someone and slaughtering a room full of people really just puts me in the mood for White Castle. Yeah. Um, you know, just gets my blood going and I just want to eat a 24-pack of sliders. <laughs> um, <laughs> anime girls eating yeah. hamburgers. Anyway... <laughs> Uh, Export Audio Network, thank you for hosting us. People can go to exportaud.io um, and subscribe to the Patreon. Hopefully you did that to get our episode on Ghost in the Shell, the 1994 movie um, by Oshi early. Um, that'd be fun. At this point, you can just get it in the public feed. But if you did that, you could have gotten that early. I'm just saying. And you can get yeah, episodes. Yeah, if you did that, you're, you're awesome. You're really, yeah. we appreciate you. And um, we hope you enjoyed the early access. Yeah. And if you do become a patron for just $1, you get early access to most, like I would say most podcasts that, uh, I think every podcast that Autumn is on, and I think most that Nora is on, but not all because some of them are, are different. Um, but like, Ornate Stairwells is the one that I do with Autumn. Uh, it's my movie podcast, so you can get that um, a week early, but there are a bunch of others. There's like Ars Arcanum, which is a Brandon Sanderson podcast. There's um, Hot Singles music podcast. Um, yeah, th- there's just a number. The other thing is if you uh, do for $5, we'll see if this is still true when this episode airs. If you donate for $5, you can get access to the new, no longer that new, podcast on the export audio <laughs> network that's for five dollar patrons only um and it is called uh funko town or no pop town funko is the name of it um it's a podcast where where ottoman I, I haven't even heard about this yeah this is this is like i learned about this last night while we were recording ornate stairwells which for listeners was months ago um and then we talked about it for for like at length for a while, but it is a um, podcast where uh, Autumn and Nora roll a random Funko Pop and then have to generally watch. Although I think they might sometimes like read a book or a comic or something, um, something that is related to whatever that property is. Um, and so the first episode uh, was they got Andre the Giant, and so they watched princess bride and then they have to talk about it um and so like at some point they're just gonna get pickle rick and they'll have to watch the pickle rick episode of (laughs) um whatever that rick and morty (laughs) yeah Yeah. whatever that show is yeah you're gonna really get us in some hot water there (laughs) the rick and morty fan fandom is gonna come for us and then we're gonna be fucked um, but anyway, if you want to go listen to the public feed for Ornate Stairwells, you can go to exportodio slash Ornate Stairwells, check out some of the episodes there. Um, and then if you like it, become a patron and get it a week early. Um, 
Anyway, Twitter accounts. You can follow us at Ghost Divers Pod on Twitter. You can follow me at FoxMomNia. Where can people follow you, Connor? Uh, you all can follow me at Rabelais, R-A-B-B-L-E-A-I-S. Yeah, and you use that Twitter account so much. I really appreciate how every new episode of Ghost Divers that goes out, you promo on your account as well. Um, it's just really helping us grow the brand. Um, yeah, I feel like I feel like you're telling me what you need right now. Is that is that what you need from me? <laughs> um, I no, can, I just I, can, I, I think can it's funny that. how much you just don't use your Twitter account, but we we promo it every single time. We tell people to follow you there. Nobody follows you there. Um, people should follow Connor, whether or not he's tweeting at Rabelais. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. I, I welcome all followers. Yeah. R-A-B-B-L-E-A-I-S. Maybe you'll get really into Twitter when we're doing Pondering Pluton. Maybe that'll happen. Maybe. Maybe. Um, I feel like if, if there was just a specific, like, crow high Twitter space. Yeah. I think that might be the one, like, access point where I could like get it into Twitter. Yeah. Um, if I was, if there was just like that space to engage. So crow high um, Twitter hit Connor up. Um, also pondering Putan, I just double checked. I think the, the first episode is going to be July 27th. So that's still a ways out. Um, even as people are listening to this, but look forward to that podcast. Um, we'll get into it when I talk about, the concept of the the podcast like in that introductory episode but basically we're trying to read along uh so that it roughly fits the timeline of if you're reading it coming out in the weekly uh magazines in japan um so yeah we're gonna like try and read it at roughly that pace which means that we're starting our first uh episode where we're discussing the chapters um on august 3rd 2022 and then it's going to run all the way until um we will finish it uh i guess the final episode is going to be june 14th 2028 although i think we finish like may 24th 2028 i think is um roughly when the it finished running in the magazine like you know in comparison so yeah get ready y'all you never look at bath mat the same way again <laughs> yeah Still, my favorite part about Pondering Bhutan is if someone decides to listen to it and read along and has no familiarity with Cromartie High School, the anime, or the manga, um, it's going to take them so long to even understand what Pondering Bhutan with Ajishiro Taro and Hachimitsu Boy <laughs> means. <laughs> um, that's that's part of the hook, though. Yeah. Figuring that out. Um Yeah. I'm excited for one when we get into territory where it's just completely new content that's not in the show that you don't know. And then also when we get to the part where it's stuff that I haven't read because it's English like fan translations of volumes that were never released by ADV in the US. Um, and then we're just in completely uncharted territory. But that won't for me won't be until like 2026 or something. <laughs> yeah, um, I think in, in many ways this is uh pondering Putin, it's gonna be uncharted territory and uh I'm I'm very uh I'm very excited. Yeah. Our intention is for it to be closer to uh the stuff that you will often hear at the post credit stuff. You know, we, we do this whole thing, you're gonna hear a, a fun theme song and then there might be some us of us goofing around at the end of this episode. Um that's gonna be a little bit 
that like goof around after the ending theme is probably going to be a little bit more the vibe of pondering Putan. But, um, I mean, we'll also discuss the chapter, but there's not going to be a ton yeah, to think... discuss all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of it's just going to be us goofing off. <laughs> yeah. Um, it is, it is my attempt at doing just a, a short chill hangout podcast with you, Connor, so that our only interactions aren't us talking about deep theory about animations yeah. that we're watching like this incredibly like it like time consuming academic preparation for these our anime podcasts yeah yeah that um yeah no that would be um yeah just you mix it up you know yeah um anyway as, we should wrap up as, this episode yeah yeah we're just we're rambling yeah bye everyone See you all next time. Roaming in between the world of sleep and awake Seems so far away Come and sweep the shores of my mind Letting it be visions pass and emotions arise Letting them go beyond From doors I've never seen Opening one by one Wake up, I hear a voice
Um, you want to do a time dot is clap? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, you want to do forty nine? Um. Okay. Mine was a little weird there. It like hitched for a second. Let, let's do another one, maybe, just for the okay. safe side. I I don't use this that much, but. All right, let's do uh, seven. Okay. Okay. I felt better about that one. Okay, good. Hopefully, uh, hopefully it works for you. Yeah. I think okay. it was fine because I, I think I clapped and it switched over to the nine, but it skipped eight. And so I was still mm. timing it in my head and I clapped as it was switching over to nine. But the fact that I it went from seven to nine and had a long pause where eight should be just made me like, mm, unsure about this. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure it would be fine. Yeah. Um, um all right. I'm going to stop recording. Okay. If that's okay. But first I'm going to go to the bathroom. Okay. You want to uh, clap? Um, I'm just doing a, a little mark in my track labels. Okay. I'm uh, okay. Go ahead and clap for your own satisfaction. I'll be back. Uh, I already did. Okay. <laughs> Headphones back on. Cool. Can you hear me? Yep. There's Dr. Pepper. Okay. Yeah, I just cracked open my AL81. One episode before I was expecting to, but that's okay. Um, we went a little long in that first episode, but we did. We'll be fine. I some of these I don't know if we'll spend quite as much time on, but we'll we'll play it by ear. Sure. Um, 